Hey there, and welcome to another episode of The Bible. Wait, what? Yes, this is the podcast that unravels the mysteries of the Bible's most perplexing, puzzling, and thought-provoking passages. My name is Rowan, and each session I'm joined by a member of our team at C3 Church, Camden, Picton, and Thoreau, as they quiz me on some of the more complicated, confusing, challenging, and even confronting passages that we read in our weekly Bible reading plan. understand that reading the Bible can be a challenging and perplexing experience. Many people just don't know where to start, they get confused, and so they give up. Well, that's why this podcast exists, to equip you with the tools and the knowledge to explore the richness and depth of the Bible for yourself. So grab your Bible, take a deep breath, and join us as we explore this week's passages. learn more about us or to get in touch with us at C3 Church Camden, Picton and Thoreau, visit any of our three locations websites. That's c3camden.church, c3picton.church and c3thoreau.church. Or you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube just by searching for any of our locations names. So without any further delay, let's dive into today's conversation. Jeff's bobbing away. <laughs> Welcome, everyone. My name's Jeff, and we're here again, as always, with Pastor Rowan. Hey, Jeff. Hey, everyone. And uh, this is the Bible. Wait, what? Yeah, you got it. Yep. yep. Because, uh, you know, when we read through the Bible, sometimes we come up against things that are like, mm, I don't really get that. But uh, Sometimes. Only sometimes. <laughs> well, almost every time. Almost we every time Bible, we open the I Bible, guess. I think, Jeff. Yeah. yeah. But um, anyway... Without too much further ado, I think we should probably just jump straight in today because uh, there's quite a bit to have a cool. look at. Yep, let's do it. So we'll be reading today from the book of Second Samuel to start with anyway. And so we're following on from previous weeks. Previous weeks, On the yeah. life of David largely. That's right. And uh, I think Jimmy and uh, Phil and Jeannie have all been speaking about Samuel. They have, yep. And uh, we're going to continue that on this week and... Probably for the next couple of weeks. Yes, yes, a couple more weeks to go through 2 Samuel, I'd say. Yeah, two or three more weeks. Right. It's fascinating stuff. So anyway, let's let's get cracking. So I just want to read uh, a little bit to start with from 2 Samuel. It's always good to read scripture, isn't it? Absolutely. Studying the Bible. So so what's happened here is um, King Saul has died and um, and we'll take it up in verse 3. And so this, this guy comes along to uh, David, and David says to him, where have you come from? David asked. He answered, I've escaped from the Israelite camp. What happened, David asked, tell me. The men fled from the battle, he replied. Many of them fell and died, and Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. Then David said to the young man who, who uh, who brought him the report, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? Well, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, the young man said, and there was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and the drivers in hot pursuit. And when he turned around and saw me, he called out to me and he said, and I said, what can I do? He asked me, who are you? And an Amalekite, I answered. Then he said to me, stand here by me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood beside him 
and I killed him because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm and uh, I brought them here to my Lord. Then David and all the men with them took off their clothes and they tore their clothes and everything. And, and in verse 13, David says to the young man um, who brought him the report, where are you from? He says, I'm a son of a foreigner and a Malachite, he answered. David asked him, why weren't you afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of his men and said, go strike him down. He struck him down and he died. For David had said to him, your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. Okay, so I thought we should have a little talk about that. That's a pretty confronting story, isn't it? Yeah. It is. And it's, you know, it's a real weight. What? It is. Isn't David meant to be this mm. great king of virtue and, mm-hmm. and honour and, you know, and, and this poor fella. He looks like he's an innocent doing the right thing and he's copped it, doesn't exactly, he? Exactly, yeah. yeah. He's, he's done the wishes of his king. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, well, was it his king? Were the Amalekites under Saul? Well, the Amalekites weren't. They were an enemy of Saul. An enemy, okay. However, this guy seems to have defected. He's saying, yes. assuming, assuming he's telling the truth, he says, I'm an Amalekite who's living in the land. Yeah. So he's assumingly a defector. So I'm putting myself in his position, this, yeah. this guy. So, okay, I've killed killed Saul, who I know is David's enemy. I'm going to grab the crown and, and the armband. I'm going to take it to David and, you know, David's going to just think I'm the greatest guy. That seems to be what he's you expecting, know. doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And he's getting a, he's going to get a very different response to that than exactly. what he expected. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Wh- why do you think that happens? Why? This is, this particular story is incredibly confronting because we can read the story in different ways. And if, depending on how you read it, if you read it from the Amalekites perspective, as though he's an innocent, then it seems like David's incredibly harsh. Mm-hmm. And really, I mean, basically he's, he's, sentence him to death because he's saying he murdered him. You go, like you said, but hang on a second. He's just fulfilling what Saul asked him to do. So it looks like gee, David's harsh in that situation. You hinted at something there, which is like, I'm wondering if some, some scholars think this too, wondering if the whole thing is a setup and he has been there and he, he has taken the crown and taken that. And he's off to Dave now because he thinks Dave's going to do the right thing by him. So he's spinning a story yeah. okay. that isn't the truth because he expects that Dave will go well done yeah, right. and he'll get something out of it. So the perspectives are definitely uh, challenged by this because we don't really know. We were just re- receiving a narrative here. We don't really know what's really going on inside this guy's heart or David's heart. The thing that gets me more than anything is it we have it shows us. This is one of those confronting moments. In fact, most of these passages we're going to read in 2 Samuel today, it's a, it's a pretty messed up time. This is the time we highlight King David as the great man after God's own heart. Yeah. But there's a lot of dysfunction in David's life and in society in this time. There's basically we're going to see a civil war. Yep. You know, like we saw in the book of Judges, there's been a it's carrying on. We're still we're going to see a civil war between Judah and the northern tribes here. It's like a precursor for what's going to happen a few generations in the future. So we've got to allow for the fact, I think, that this story has to confront us and we ha- at some point we're going to have to go, we don't really know what's happened here. We have to put it into its context mm-hmm. and go, this is screwed up. In today's world, this shouldn't be what's happening. Yeah, it's this. I actually think it's wrong what David did. I, I personally feel like he shouldn't have done that. Um, I'm going to have a look. I haven't done this in preparation for this session, but I'm going to go to well, – I'm going to go to one, 1 Chronicles 10. Let me see if it's about there. 
because the death of King Saul, this is being told the same story, being told hundreds of years later yep. when the book of Chronicles was written. So this is in the post-exile period, much, much later after the time that Samuel, the book of Samuel is written. And uh, Saul, it says here, Saul groaned to his armor bearer, take your sword and kill me for these pagan Philistines have come to torture me. But his armor bearer was afraid to do it. So Saul took his own sword and he fell on it. To, uh, to take, uh, he, he took his own sword and fell on it. So um, when his armor bearer realized that Saul was dead, he fell on his own sword too. Yeah. So we've got two conflicting stories here. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So isn't it interesting that over hundreds of years, one is saying the Amalekites claiming he did it later on down. And so I'm inclined to think that for whatever reason, just based on narrative and, and, and history throughout those hundreds of years, I'm inclined to think that at least by the time of Chronicles, there's probably a belief that it wasn't the, the Amalekite was lying. Yeah, right. That it was probably just that Saul wanted his armor bearer to do it and he ended up committing suicide to to fall on his own sword. Does that make sense? Well, it does make it does make sense. Maybe this, you know, all, all of Saul's army fled and this Amalekite guy came through and said, oh, I can I reckon he stuff. was a grave robber. Yeah. And I think that's, that's what I suspect has happened. Um, which is an opportune thing that people, yes. they still course, do that yeah, in, yeah. In today. So sure. I think that's how, well, I can't prove that. I'd say based on the Chronicles account, I reckon that's how the Jews hundreds of years later have interpreted it. He was basically in it for his, he was just like a looter yeah. basically scooping yeah. around, picking well, up, right. picking up the bits. He goes, Oh, look, there's Saul, there's the King, there's the crown. I'm going to take that. Dave will want that. Yeah. Assuming that he's going to get the story. So I think that's how we are to read it. Okay. But yeah. I like th- that. there would be different perspectives on that. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of the, you know, there's a saying that that I used to hear at work, you know, what's the first thing you do if you find someone that's dropped down dead? Take his watch and wallet. Well, that you know? seems to be what's happening here. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. It's like the, this opportune thing of make the most out of a bad situation. Yeah. Think about yourself. So I, th- I would be inclined to think that even though at first glance it reads like poor Amalekite, I suspect that's not the story. Yeah. And, yeah. and you know, we have to remember that David had the opportunity to kill Saul earlier. And yes, he said, multiple times. Far be it yes. for me to kill the Lord's anointed. Yeah. So, so that's in that. David's narrative, isn't yes. it? Yep. Yep. Yeah. So, okay, with, with all that in mind then, I was I was wondering, you know, so many times we we look to people like David and we think, oh, if only I was more like David, you know. So this is my question to you. Should we be modelling ourselves on David or should we – just go straight to Jesus. Oh, great question. Well, I definitely think we should model ourselves on Jesus mm-hmm. in the first instance. However, Jesus and the narrative of the New Testament models Jesus on David in numbers of key areas as the fu- the, the last David, the future David, the, yeah. the Davidic king. So I don't think we can dismiss David. Now, there are different schools of thought around this. I've heard people who go, we should not look at David other than Jesus. So every time we read David, like let's give me an example. Let give me an example. The story of David and Goliath. Now, I don't know what you've learned in church, but most often when the story of David and Goliath has been preached, we have heard it preached, and I've preached it this way, that we're David and the Goliaths are our enemies coming against us. Okay. There's a, would you agree? That's normally yeah, yeah, yeah. so sure. you know yep. that we come against the Goliaths of our world yep. in the name of the in the name of the Lord. There's a school of thought that says that's not good. Um exegesis of the Bible and we should see Jesus in David. Okay. And so the Goliath is the sin that's coming against him. While I agree that's true, I think to take that to the extreme means we miss out on applying 
the good and bad of David. Yes. And there are, there are very few characters in the Bible that I think present as good a human, um, a, a, as effective an example of character studies mm-hmm. as the life of Saul and David. This narrative through First and Second Samuel, I think it covers the full arena of human character. Yeah, probably the patriarchs in the Old Testament, in, sorry, in Genesis as well, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that sort of thing. But in this narrative, we see the positives and negatives in both Saul and David. So I think there's nothing wrong with doing that. Should we model ourselves on David? To a degree, yes. But I've said this ad nauseum on the podcast. We need to remember that David is a product of his time. There's lots of things in David that we wouldn't do. There's lots of things that David would think are the right thing to do that our society now having progressed more and having been built upon the ethics of thousands of years of Judeo-Christian belief would go, that's not right. Like, you know, this guy, okay, so he's an opportune Amalekite. Let's assume he's an opportune Amalekite that's come along. Do you think it's right that he just ordered him dead right on the spot? I mean, most of us should be confronted by that. We go, that's not right. That's not a capital crime. I mean, even if you think, even if you're an advocate for capital capital punishment, it's usually reserved for murder. So, you know, he, he's saying it's he murdered the son of God here, but most of us murdered, murdered Saul, but most of us would go, yeah, but Saul was asking for it. He was, he was in the throes of death anyway. He, yeah. he was, wasn't going to survive. So was it an act of compassion? Should it at least have been manslaughter? You know, that kind of thing, because, um, you know, he was, he was going to be, a, if, he, honestly, if the Philistines had have got the king alive, they would have totally, um, tortured him. Oh yeah. That's sure. what he's afraid of. Yep. So, I have to think that we need to go, okay, I, I'm not totally convinced that David's response was warranted here, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't look at David's life and learn from it. And we can learn, the key things we can learn from David's life is his heart for God. That seems to be the case. Sure. There's two things. It says, I found David, the son of Jesse, God says this, I've found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. That's the first thing. Second testimony, it says about David, is it says David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite, which is the whole Bathsheba thing. Yep. So David, in the context of his life, did what was right. But I can pull apart all kinds of things like this story and go, uh, I don't think that was right, Dave. Yep. I remember uh, Dr. Ken Chance saying many, many years ago, he said, you know, we make out David to be this superhero, but if he, if he was alive today, he said he'd probably slit your throat and take your daughter. Yes. You know, because that was culturally prevalent at the time to do that kind of thing. So we need to allow him to be a product of his time, but still see that God was still ministering through him and to him, despite what he didn't know. Yeah. And and it would seem that God spoke to David quite clearly. David seemed to to hear David uh, quite clearly. Look at the Psalms. You know, we'll we'll see that in the next next chapter. Yeah. You know, David speaks to the Lord. And um, so I guess, you know, perhaps God was giving David some insight into this guy that came along. Maybe and, so. You know, so then in that case, you're saying maybe David was an instrument of God's judgment against this guy. Maybe yes, so. possibly. Yeah. 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 And a lot of this is speculatory. Yeah. I don't think we can build doctrine on it, but it's good and healthy to allow a passage like that to confront us. I'm glad you just didn't skip over it. Yeah. Because it's warrants some conversation. For sure. You could read through that and just go, oh, well, that's it. Yep. I'm, I'm out. Done, I'm done with Christianity because this this great hero David he just kills people. Yeah, you know, that's right. And, uh, and we're going to see it later on when he calls for his wife to come back and snatches him off another woman, off another man that she's been married to. And it's 
Yeah, David was a hothead at times. Yes. Yep. But yeah, like you say, we if, if we study his life from you know when he was a, a young boy as a shepherd and all the way through to when he dies, you can see he wrestles with things, doesn't he? Yes. And, and you know, he, in in the Psalms and whatever, he's sort of trying to work this life out. How do I be a human? How do I live in this crazy world um, and still follow the Lord? Yeah, and he did that in a way despite the dysfunction in his world. I mean, he had concubines. He did all the things that we shouldn't do, right? And he had all of that, and yet God still – this is the amazing thing about the partnership God has with humanity. It could be easy to read these stories in the Old Testament and think, why would God even bother? But it's the grace of God that he enters into a broken humanity and still works with people in a broken humanity. And therefore, I wonder – I have to be humble enough to go, I don't think – I should think I've got – my society is perfect or my understanding of ethics is perfect. Maybe I'm broken and I've got some poor ethics in some some areas. Like, you mm. know, good godly people 500 years ago thought slavery was okay. God still worked with them. That's right. Now yeah. we're, we're aboard, you know, we think that's terrible. So I wonder what we don't know that's yes. still not right. Yeah. What blind spots do we have? But God still works with us. So I wonder maybe he could work with David despite that. For sure. Okay, that's great. So uh, in the next uh, section of this chapter, David um, writes this uh, lament mm. for Saul, who I guess you could say Saul was his enemy. It's, yes. Certainly he did try to kill him. Yeah. Well, Saul Saul saw David as his enemy. We can say that. Well, without, yes. Yep. Without question, because he actually called him his enemy on a couple of occasions. Yeah. But, but David just pours out his heart, and you can see David's heart in this lament, mm. that he's just – you know, he he loves Saul, mm. even though Saul tried to kill him. Yes. And he weeps for him and he says, daughters of Israel, weep for Saul. And, you know, um, how the mighty have fallen in battle. And, you know, he, he heaps <coughs> praises on Saul. So I think we get a, a real good insight into David here, don't we? We do. And see, if I'm honest, I read that if, in my own flesh, knowing what David's been through. And I think, David... Are you crazy? Like yeah. this guy was out to kill you yep. and now you're all pro Saul. Like my mind says, this is over the top the other way. You know what I mean? That's what I'm wrestling with. That's a confronting moment for me. Yes. Is that, you know, I, I part of, if I'm honest, part of me would go, yeah, finally I'm the king. I was the anointed king. Finally the Lord got him. But that's not his heart, is it, at all? Well, it's not. And, and I think it just shows that when we walk with the Lord, we can have thoughts and feelings that you wouldn't think is possible. That's right. Because, Good. you know, the Lord works through us. And and the Lord was working through David here and, and now, you know, we have Jesus and the Holy Spirit to help us do the same thing. So, you know, at times when we think, oh, I could never do that, we can do that. If David in his screwed up culture can show a compassion for the enemy who's come against him, how much more with the Holy Spirit inside of us yes. should we be able to show a compassion and say like Stephen when he's being martyred, you know, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Yeah. That seems to be what David's doing in this psalm, isn't it? It's like he's moving beyond the offence. It is. It's it's Jesus in David, yes, isn't it? Is. It, it is. Know? Yeah, it's a yeah. great thought. Yeah. Mm. Okay, I'm happy with that. Yeah, it's a beautiful, a beautiful story to read. All right, yeah. we'll go on to chapter two. Yeah. Welcome back. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 2. I just want to read verse 1. 
In the course of time, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up to one of the towns of Judea, he asked. The Lord, uh, the Lord said, Go up. David asked, Where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord answered. So, just that little verse there really speaks to me about David, that he inquired of the Lord. He seems to inquire of the Lord before, not all the time, but most of the time before he embarks on anything, he inquires of the Lord. How often do we do that? Not enough. Good thought, Jeff. Mm. Mm. Not enough. Say Lara on that one. Yeah. So anyway, I think just something to keep in the back of your before mind. Before he made any significant step, because yes. this is like, what am I going to do now? I'm the anointed king. Yeah. What, what's the next step for me? And instead of taking matters into his own hand and making assumptions, he goes to the Lord. Yeah. Great thought. Yep. Yeah. So that's great, eh? And he says, where shall I go? And the Lord says, to Hebron. Now, what do you know about Hebron? I know a little bit about it, but not probably. Um, not so as much as he- you. Hebron is, it was one of the, it was one of the, um, it was the town that was given to Caleb, am I correct? And, yes. And it was one of the uh, town cities of refuge in southern Judah, I think. Okay, I'm not sure about that one. Well, if, anyway. is it the town that was given to Caleb? Because if it, well, let me tell you what I've got. So um, I, I looked it up. So the Lord first showed Abraham or Abram. Yes, that's true. The land that would belong to him uh, and his offspring from, from Hebron. Hebron. That's correct. Yes, okay. good call. The, the meaning of Hebron is place of joining or alliance. Okay. So it kind of, as we read on, you will see that it becomes a place of alliance mm. and a place of – because at the time, David is uh, – well, he gets anointed as the king of Judah. Correct. For the first seven and a half years, he's going to rule yep. over only his own tribe, yeah. That's right. And there's, Israel is separate from that and a few other bits and pieces of Yeah, sort of some other hangers-on and things, yeah. But <laughs> yeah, yes, right. the other the other tribes other than Judah, basically. That's right, yeah. yeah. So, um, Yep, so in verse 4 it says, The men of Judah came to Hebron, and there they anointed David king over the tribe of Judah. So now David has finally become, well, he hasn't fulfilled his destiny, has he? He's half fulfilled his he's destiny. He's half fulfilled his destiny. Like. He's, he's got king, yes. Yep. But it's interesting that, that uh, you know, when it, whenever, whenever God says go to a place, there's always a, a name behind. A There's always behind a meaning the behind the name. Yeah, yeah. and that's that, that's the way the Bible writers have written it intentionally. Mm. In fact, I think sometimes they write that in because they want you to dig into the meanings of those yeah. names. Yeah. yeah. So I love the thought of alliance there. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's the beginning yeah. of an alliance that he makes with the tribe of Judah. So a bit of history here. He's while he's been an exile from his homeland, and Saul's been the king, and Saul's been chasing him. Immediately prior to this, he's been living with the Philistines, um, pretending to yep. serve the Philistines under um, under the, the the king. While he's been there, he's been raiding all these um, other tribe, these other towns, and he would basically raid all these towns that weren't Jewish towns. And he would leave. No, this is a horrible story, but he would leave no one alive, and he would mm-hmm. he would take all the gifts from that, and he was sending them all the gifts to the towns in Judah. Under, and then when the king, the Philistine king would say to him, hey, what have you been doing today? Where'd you go raiding? He goes, oh, against the towns in Judah. He was lying, basically. And all the while he was buying friends in Judah, yeah. preparing for the day when he could 
actually get some friends. So this comes along and he's it's very strategic on David. It is. He's been planning this a long time before. So now he's got some friends. Isn't it interesting when you watch, you know, programs like uh, Vikings and The Last Kingdom and that and you see all this sort of stuff going on in that yes, time. Yes, you see it you there. Know, yep. the, what, medieval yep. ages. Um, yeah, there's all this scheming and plotting and, yeah. you know, the, the, the guy who's too – Second in charge is always plotting against the Totally. King we have it today. That. It just happens in the corridors at the back of Parliament House. It's exactly the same well, thing. Yeah. It's just not done with uh, it's done, not done with physical blood these days, but it's done with a lot of uh, a lot of uh, you know conniving behind the scene, isn't it? But it's yeah, the same it issue in the human heart, which is trying to you know scheme, like you say. Yep, and that's what's happening here. There's a lot of scheming going on. Yes, and personally, right. I have a, if I'm honest. I don't think that David was doing the right thing. I, I, I'm confronted by the fact that David would be pretending to raid somewhere and raid somewhere else and not leave anybody alive and, and then trying to buy friends with his raiding. Something should confront you about that. You should be able to go, oh, I'm bothered by that. Yeah. And then be bothered by it. But then I think the way to get beyond the bother is to go, like you just said, that was a normal practice at the time. In fact, normal's not the right word, common because yes. normal normalizes it. I don't think it's an, ever a normal practice. I think it's a product of human sin, but that was the common practice throughout from this time in 1000 BC all the way through to pretty much the middle of 15, like two and a half thousand years through to probably 1600, AD. This was this, the kind of thing that was done. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, when a, a character came along that didn't operate under those ideas – like Jesus or mm. let's say someone like Gandhi or someone like that, they, they really stood out, They didn't stand they? out. They like, that's good call, Wow, Jeff. what's going on here? Yeah, you know? that's right. Because we so easily get sucked into just following along with what is the the norm. Mm. Mm. So the, list, the, the lesson to the listeners is when you're reading this, allow it to confront you, but then don't dismiss it. Just recognize that if you were reading any other historical fiction book, you just go, that's just the history. Yes. If you're watching Vikings, you just go, that's just the history. So recognize that it doesn't mean that it discredits God. It actually should be read as this is screwed up humanity, but God is still working despite screwed up humanity. That's how I would encourage our listeners to read these stories. Yep. Okay. Well, let's uh, move on. I think uh, in verse eight, it talks about uh, Abner. Is the son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army. He'd taken Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanahim. He made him king over Gilead, Shuri, Jezreel, and also over Ephraim, Benjamin, and all of Israel. Mm -hmm. So there's a setup here of, you know, Israel against Judah sort of starting to happen. And, and these guys, they are, verse 12, Abner, son of Ner, together with the men of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, um, they went to Gibeon and Job, son of Zuri, and David's men went out to meet them at the pool of Gibeon. So there's this kind of confrontation, but kind of, you know, on one side of the pool and the other side of the pool maybe. And verse 14 is just, just when I read it, I thought, oh, my goodness, it was a real, wait, what? It is, isn't it? Abner said to Job, let's have some of the young men get up and fight hand to hand in front of us. I thought, yeah, that's, you know, that's not That's the so champion bad. thing, yeah. Let's get up and have a bit of a punch up. Yep. 
So they say, okay, and in verse 15, so they stood up, they were counted off, 12 men from each side, then each man grabbed his opponent by the head and thrust his dagger into his opponent's side and they fell down together. So Wait, what? Wait, what? Yeah, like, my goodness. Doesn't sound like normal battle, does it? No, it's... it's, uh, It sounds almost like it's a play. Yeah. 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 I mean, you'd really love to be a, one of the young men, wouldn't you? That's right. It's like, what's going on here? Is it that these guys know that they're going to die and they're just getting up there and it's like, you grab my head, I'll grab your head and we'll just kill each other. That's how it reads. Yeah. I don't think that's what's going on though. I haven't studied it, but I, I've always thought that's just a very oversimplified perspective on what is the common practice. This is the champion yeah. practice. This is the Goliath and David practice. So in this case, there's 12 of them. But the idea is that rather than risk our whole armies, we would actually set up champions against – we would set up people against each other and it's like, okay, if you if you win, we'll serve you and if you win, we'll serve you. I yeah. think that's probably what's going on here. But it just so happens in this case that they've all killed each other. Yeah. Like it's obviously – I'm wondering if maybe it's that there's a – it's trying to show that there's a degree of even matchness about yeah, this. Yeah, maybe, yeah. But it's, it's a strange story. It conjures up that idea of, you know, we – uh, two men get their hands lashed together in a knife and they've got a Yes, know, it's like that kind that of thing. Kind of yeah, good thought. One of you is going to die, but in this case both. And, and what happens yeah. here is that because there's no clear result of this champion's battle, yep. they end up all going to war with each other. Yeah, there's no. I wonder if, if they had have had a clear result and six guys on one side, they might have gone, okay, well, that's it, you win. Yeah, we'll all go home. Because that, that was the standard practice. I mean, no king, we just think, oh, this, this whole – this is just a time of butchery and everyone would go to war. But Jesus said it. He said, no king goes to war without counting the cost. Mm. We just think oh, everyone just fought all the time. But kings were smart enough to know, no, if I lose my army here, I lose all my crops. I don't have anyone to harm, you know, I'm not going to have any men to protect me. So there was always strategy, military strategy in this. No king wanted to go to war and lose all their men. So they would often use this champion concept yeah. as a means of trying to protect. And, you know, it's almost like economic today. We don't just spend, you know, a good – Good company doesn't com, company or country doesn't just spend all their money. They they think about yeah. the cost of that. That's what seems to be happening here. But in this case, it didn't work. So they obviously went to war. I think that's what's happening here, Jeff. Yep. Okay. And as we read on, there's there's some other pretty gory stuff that happens in the, you know as these guys kind of really start to fight each other a bit more. Um, it is worth noting this because these names will come up constantly. Joab. Abishai and Asahel. Mm. Well, Asahel's only going to come up in this story because he's going to die in this story. These are the three brothers. These are three nephews of David, three brothers. Yep. And Joab is the commander in the army. Abishai is one of his 30 mighty men and Asahel was the younger brother. So these these will come up. Joab especially will come up repeatedly in the story throughout the rest of David's life as king. So that's why this story is worth just hearing these three names because you'll hear them and know that they are David's nephews. Yep, and they, they yes, that's right. They get, they carry on and they do a bit more fighting and yes. whatever, don't they? And in this and case, Asahel of... goes after Abner and we're going to Ab, – Abner actually says, don't do this. I'm not going to be able – if you come after me, I'm going to have to kill you. Yep, How right. am I going to be able to look at Joab? And and, and nonetheless, Asahel chases him and Joab has to uh, – Abner has to kill him. Yeah, and it says that th- he thrust the butt of his spear into Asahel's stomach mm. and the spear came through his back, so – the butt of his spear. I assume it's the other end. The blunt end. Which makes me think it must have been pretty, he must have been pretty strong. It's a good push. And it's a good push. And Asahel's running pretty fast at him. Yeah. So he's just gone. 
like that. Ooh. Maybe as he's running up behind him. Yeah. I'm sure, Horrible. I, I'm sure I've seen that in Vikings. You might have seen that, you reckon, <laughs> the bat end of the spear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. Let's not get on to Vikings. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. There's a lot of similarities, Jeff. Well, there is. Yeah. Even though they're parted by the better part of 2,000 years, there's a lot of similarities in, in this culture. Yeah. There yeah. wasn't a lot of change happening yeah. in the world, really, was there, no. over that time? I was still relatively primitive, I suppose. That's correct, yeah. Yeah. Um, and Abner calls out to Job in verse 26, um, must the sword devour forever? Don't you realise this will end in bitterness? How long before you order your men to stop pursuing their fellow Israelites? So, you know, there's a few a few guys that just want to fight and a few guys that are just like, come on, let's just, let's just call it, let's just call sort it a day. this out. And it just takes time mm-hmm. for, for it all to sort of happen. Um I think it's basically the rest of this chapter is just about fighting and pursuing and stopping and, you know. Yeah, and in the end there was only 19 of Joab's men, David's men, had been killed and 360 of Abner's men. So that's a a decisive victory. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not talking thousands dead, but it's a decisive victory for for David's men at this point. The main thing we need to take out of this story as we move into the next story is that Abner killed Asahel. Mm Mm-hmm. And it wasn't really – the story set up, it's not really Abner's fault. You're going to see Abner is not – Abner is portrayed as a good guy in this story. Joab is always portrayed in a bad light, even though Joab is David's commander because Abner killed him. He tried not to. He, Asahel, go away, find someone else. But Asahel refused, so Abner killed him. But we need to know that because that's going to come up later because Joab is going to avenge Asahel's death in a chapter or so. Yeah, sure. Okay, let's move on. All right. We'll go to chapter three. Okay, here we go. Chapter three. Jeff's clicking away there as he listens to the tune. <laughs> yeah, I like that. This it's a catchy song. tune, yeah, isn't it? Don't change it. Don't I change always, it. Okay. I'll, whenever I'm if I'm driving in the car or whatever, I have a little. I have know, to try and get the volume right all the time because it's always yeah. a little bit louder. But I think I've got the volume level on the on the Roadcaster Pro at the right level now. It is a little bit loud sometimes. Yeah, I will admit. Yep. So, uh, chapter one: the war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. And then uh, there's just a, a bunch of It's a picture of all his born? children born, which is a sign. In that culture, you know, we think of it, oh, well, he's got all these wives and children. But in that culture, that's a sign, for a king, that's a sign of heritage. You see it in, yeah. you know, medieval Europe, the king needed a, in an heir. So this is, a, this is actually an establishment. This is a, these few verses that list all these sons and heirs of of David are actually to prove what we just saw in the first verse, that the, that the household of David grew stronger and stronger. Stronger and stronger. The more heirs you've got, the stronger your kingdom or your your perspective kingdom is. That's all it's trying to say. Mm, right. And so it, it lists uh, six of David's children. Uh, I guess they're just his sons. Yep. Uh, I guess they're just the first six. Yep. I don't know how many he had, probably dozens yeah, and dozens. Yeah, I don't actually know how many he had, but. He had a lot of concubines and whatever. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, the concubines, even with that, if they had children, they weren't regarded as same as in medieval, yeah. medieval Europe. They yeah. were regarded as bastard children. They weren't usually able to take the heri- take the heir. Although there's a lot of evidence that David was a bastard child too. So a lot of scholars believe that 
That's why he was out in the paddock in the first place because he wasn't one of he wasn't the main one of the the main seven sons of of um, Jesse. So maybe David had a soft spot for that. Hmm. Yeah. Right. Okay. So the kind of the the warring goes on a bit, and uh, during the war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Ab- Abner had been strengthening his own position in the house of Saul. Okay, so Abner's, you know, working He's his scheming way up. and politicising, isn't he? Yep. He is, a, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's non-stop, isn't it's it? It's non-stop, Jeff. Yeah. It's like... Uh, it's human behaviour. Well, we see it happen in churches, don't we? We, we do. We see, you know, someone come into a church and go, I'm going to take that pastor's position and yep. they usurp the pastor. And, I saw a, a you know? blog post somewhere this week where someone was saying they'd been involved in politics. I've heard this many years ago about Chuck Colson who was... Uh, this is the original version of it. Chuck Colson, who um, was one of the original Watergate, he was one, he became a Christian in jail after the Watergate scandal. Oh, yeah. But he said he'd served in three presidential campaigns, and he reckoned there was more politics in church boards than there was in presidential campaigns. And then I heard a podcast this week saying the same thing. Someone was saying I couldn't get a board member, even though they've been a politician, because they said, "No, nah, there's more politics in church boards." So this is scheming and power play. It's it's in the human nature, and we have to constantly fight against that. God is our provider. We don't have to scheme and manipulate to get our way. It's what it's it's the Adam and Eve issue. It's like I'm didn't do it my way, I'll take it. Mm. It's in the human condition yeah, to, yeah. to take rather than to give and trust that God will God will give us what we need. Yeah, yeah. And it takes well, I guess not everyone, but it takes a bit of time to sort of be comfortable with that position, I think, doesn't it? That that we don't have to be the top of the heap. We can we can yeah we be can happily be happy to be just Better to be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. Yes. That's enough for me. That's exactly. that's the attitude that the Lord wants to bring into us, that trust. It does take time, Jeff, and we're, we're always warring against it. And someone will do something like a Saul against us and we, we want to fight back. And we've got to go, no, 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 I'm not here to fight back. I've got to trust that God will God will elevate me in his time to the degree he wants me to be elevated. It takes humility. Yeah, right. So as we read on there, um, Abner gets his nose out of joint. Because yeah, this, with Ishbosheth. This, yeah, this, um, what's it say? Uh, he had a concubine named Rizpah, daughter of Aya, and Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why did you sleep with my father's concubine? So he's getting, you know, blamed for sleeping with, with Rizpah. Rizpah. Rizpah, yep. And Abner was angry and he says, What am I, a dead dog? That, you know, a Judean dog, he yeah, says here, yep. You know, yep. And uh, so he gets a bit upset and he says, um, I haven't, you know, I'm on your side. I haven't handed you over to David or anything, but now because you accuse me, I'm going to go and. Uh, this is like the last straw for Abner. Yeah. Yep. And he's like, I'm going to go over and, what does it say? Um, and transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and establish David's throne over Israel. So this is where this is all sort of, you know, the, uh, what do we say Hebron The was? alliance. The, the alliance yes. starts to happen yes. in Hebron. A little bit about Abner. So this is, Abner was the, Dude who was the commander of Saul's army even before he was the commander of Ishbosheth's army. Abner's the one who was protecting the king when David came and took the spear and the water jug. He was the yeah, right. he was the Joab. He was the he was the Joab to Saul as oh, well, he was the you know leader to Saul as Joab was to David during that time. Yeah, yeah. So he's got a lot of influence. He's like the second in charge. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. And he's gotten by the top by this time. It's said he's got a lot of power. He goes, that's it. You're going to carry treat me like that. You're done, boy. Yeah, that's it. I'm I'm going back. Yep, I'm going to hand the whole kingdom over to David. Yep. And then Abner, in verse 12, then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to say to David, whose land is it? 
make an agreement with me and I will help you bring all Israel over to you. Good, said David. I will make an agreement with you. Good. Of course he says good. 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 Oh, this good. is what I'm waiting for. Yeah. You know, yep. this is, this is uh, it's all starting to happen. Yep. Um, but 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 he's 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 kind of not just happy to get the no. the whole kingdom. He says, "Okay, I'll do that, but make sure you bring Michal, daughter of Saul, when you come to see me." David must have liked it, did he? Do you know much I, about her? I think I, he had a soft spot for her, he even though have. all the way through the narrative she's pasted, she's portrayed as a troublemaker. So this is Michal, who will later judge David for dancing in front of the ark. This is the one who he did fall in love with her when he was Saul's in Saul's army. This is the one who um, told him to get away from Saul and jumped out the window. And then she put a whole lot of idols in the bed and made out, oh yeah, David was going to kill me to get him away. This is that one. She is never portrayed in a positive light, but David had this, it's almost like a Samson and Delilah thing. He had this thing for her, but she was never really had a thing for him. I don't think not to the same degree. It's probably a case of a man falling for a woman. Yeah, and this woman, she was married to another guy. Well, that's right. After David had left and gone, the years have passed, and so Saul's remarried her onto someone else. Yeah, right. Yeah. So he's married to Paltiel. Uh, Paltiel, yep. Paltiel, yeah. So and then David, <laughs> David says, I betrothed her to myself for the price of 100 Philistine foreskins. Well, that's it, Dave. You've got to get her now. You've got to get her, yeah. All those Philistines died for it. Yeah. But, and it says the husband uh, – so they go to get this this lady and the husband is just crying behind her, weeping. Then then Abner said to him, go back home. So he went home. That's I feel for that guy. Yeah, I know. I mean, he's, pretty, he's pretty been rough. with Mikhail for years. Yeah. And now he's just had his wife taken off. I mean, this is – once again, this is confronting. This is It is. This is not a functional society, but it is what it was. We need to see it in its time. You're right. So Abner conferred with the uh, elders of Israel and said, for some time you've wanted to make David your king. Now do it. For the Lord promised David, by my servant David, I will rescue my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all mm. their enemies. So this was. I God's just had a thought about Michal as to why, thinking why does David want Michal back? You know, you said that. I just It just occurred to me, I think David wants Michal back because Michal is Saul's daughter. Mm. And so to marry, in, to, to take back the wife of the previous king is an alliance thing. It is a, mm. it is a, it, people will look at it and go, well, he's married the king's daughter. So there's a, there's, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. it's more probably more political than. Joins than, the families Exactly. Together, I reckon yeah. that's part of what's going on. I've never that, thought about that before, yeah. but I reckon that makes sense to that's me. That's certainly, like we're talking about, happened in all ha- those happens kings in all of the kings. England and Exactly. Scotland I reckon it's a political marriage as opposed to anything else. Yeah. Good. Verse 26. I've got that marked here for some reason. Joab then left David and sent messengers <laughs> after Abner and they brought him back from the cistern of Sirai, but David did not know it. Now when Abner returned to Hebron, Job took him aside into an inner chamber as if to speak with him privately and there to avenge the blood of his brother Ashal, Joab stabbed him in the stomach and he died. This is screwed up Joab right here. Yeah. So what has happened immediately before this is Abner's come and made this alliance and David's gone, great, go and do it. So Abner's gone away in peace, no war. Yep. Joab 
is only thinking about himself and avenging the blood of Asahel. We've already read in the previous chapter that it was Asahel's fault. I mean, Joab, Abner didn't want to kill him, but Asahel kept pursuing him. So Joab now is going to go after Abner and under the under pretense, pretend, hey, come on, let's have a conversation and then stab him in cold blood. Mm. This is does not paint Joab in a good light. No, it doesn't. No. And the thing that I thought was interesting is that there's a lot of stabbing in the stomach yeah. in those days. There is, isn't there? Which I would have thought is not the best way to kill someone. It's probably a slow way to kill someone. But I think it's probably a subtle way yeah. to kill someone. If you've got your dagger by your side, yeah, you, you can pull it out quickly and just, especially in this case, the picture is here. Hey, come over here, Asahel. Uh, come over here, Abner. They're supposed to, if, some, if you're pulling someone close to you, yeah. like if I pull you over, I can yeah. stab you in the stomach without you realizing it. So I think that's the picture of it. Yeah. It's, it's death in cold blood. See, this Ehud does the same thing back in the book of Judges when he goes to King Eglon. He says, oh, I've got a secret message for you, King, and he reaches into his thigh and pulls out his, his uh, reaches into his right thigh and pulls out a dagger and sticks it into Ehud's stomach and leaves it there. So I think those kind of deaths are deaths where it's uh, they're pictured in the scriptures as they're underhanded deaths. Yes, they're, yeah. they're deceptive deaths. Yep. Yeah, definitely. Yep. You probably see that in the movies too. It, may, oh, it yeah, makes perfect yeah. sense that that would be – when someone's close to you, that would be the logical thing to do. Yeah, all all those movies about you know Caesars and whatever that's how they all that's all they had did it. Yeah, exactly. Their brothers and sisters. I and, think that's what's they? going on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, close. Brother. If you've got someone close, then stab them. Yeah, I think yeah. that's the picture. So, verse twenty nine. So after this stabbings occurred, verse twenty nine. Um, well, let's read verse twenty eight later. When David heard about this stabbing, he said. I and my kingdom are forever innocent before the Lord concerning the blood of, Abner's, of Abner, son of Ner. May his blood fall on the head of Joab and his whole family. May Joab's family never be without someone who has a running sore or leprosy or who leans on a crutch or who falls by the sword or who lacks food. It's a pretty bad curse to put on someone, isn't it? It is. And I was wondering, do you think David could pronounce curses on people. Mm. You know what I mean? We just read that and go, oh, yeah, David cursed him. But to just say it, but. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Has, has God given him mm. the power to, to release curses? Um, I don't think in this story we're going to see whether that was the case or not. I'm just thinking there are other stories where that happens. Um, maybe Elisha's story where Gehazi gets leprosy. I would you curse someone? Well, no, that's <laughs> to me that's not right. I mean, no. maybe that, but the writers probably want you to see that as a judgment. The, the writers who are writing this, you got to remember, Joab's the bad guy. Yeah. So David in this case is being portrayed as the good guy because he says, "Hey, this is, I'm innocent of this murder. Mm-hmm. This had nothing to do with me." So I think the writer wants you to see this as God's judgment upon Joab for this innocent murder because he'll go on and say he killed him in peacetime as though in war. This was supposed to be a peaceful thing. So I think, I don't know whether or not they would have believed it was a curse. I suspect, this is just me guessing, I suspect, yes, I suspect David perhaps thought that as the king, he had, he was God's mouthpiece yeah. and he had the power to pronounce this curse upon of, of upon Joab. But he would have seen it as this is God's judgment upon you because you have sinned. You've done the wrong thing. You've committed murder in cold blood. So, yeah. I'll, yeah. But I wouldn't do it that way. <laughs> I, I guess this sort of language is quite prevalent through the Psalms too. Oh, isn't totally. It? You know, may, yeah. 
Maybe. dash yeah. their children on rocks and all yeah, kinds yeah. of horrible stuff. So, yes, yeah, so in the Psalms, I think you're supposed to see it as as um, there's a poetic, there's a, a yeah. pouring out of emotion there. Maybe it's the same here. Yeah. Maybe this is just hyperbole for the sake of emotion. Yeah. I'd be, you'd have to do some commentary on that, folks, to see what – do some study on commentaries and see what they would say and not just what they would say but why they would say it. Yeah. Mm. It certainly sounds like it's, yeah, more of a descriptive sort of uh, – of way of expressing his emotions rather than than an actual, you know, yeah. like a a witch might. Put, well, like turn a, into yes, a exactly. Or, or a witch, yeah. Do, yeah, a witch doctor cursing someone. Yeah, which is what was happening in Ephesus in the time of Paul. Yeah, yeah I don't think it's supposed to be that. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Anything else you'd like to talk about in, um, in that chapter? No. So there's another. Just we'll just mention it that there's as David composed this lament for Saul, he's going to compose another lament for Abner. That's going to have all this hyperbole in it as well and basically stating that Abner was innocent yes and it's because of that lament that um he then it's public and that kind of solidifies to the rest of the Israelites because they would have remember they were David was trying to merge them together yeah they know they've sent Abner down there Abner's died how would they know that um it could it could escalate the tension even further yeah. so Abner so David has to propose this lament if he's going to win them back he has to show it had nothing to do with him. This was Joab solely and that I had nothing to do with that. Yep. That's the whole lament that we're going to read in, what we read in the rest of the Samuel. So a lament is would be spoken out to the people in, in a whole bunch of different places around the kingdom, yep. I suppose. Yeah, written right? in, a, a, in, a, in a poem or a song and it would go out there. David's singing this and he's commanding us to sing this song. So it's, it's like the media. It's like the social media yes. of the day. Yeah, yeah. So the word got out. Oh, this is this is King David's lament over Abner. He was no party to this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it was it was political. Once again, it was political. Like our prime minister coming on the TV and going, you know, I'm, you I'm know, deeply I'm sorry for deeply this. Sorry yeah, for, yeah, the way that bullfed carried on over. Exactly. There. Yes, that's that's how it would be. Mm. Yep, I think that's how we read it. Yeah. Okay. All right, we're going to go to Second Samuel four now. Yes. Uh, yes, we are. Okie dokie, 2 Samuel chapter 4. So there's a bit more fighting going on and then there's this, this strange little story that introduces us to Mephibosheth. And it's found in chapter 4. And in most Bibles it's it's in brackets because it's just kind of just inserted in there. For, it seems like it's out of context with the rest of the story. It does, yeah. yeah. But as we read on through the chapters we'll find out that it's – it's quite important that this is in there. So it says, Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. That's that Saul and Jonathan had died. His nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried to leave, he fell and became disabled. His name is Mephibosheth. And that's it. So we know that this kid falls and becomes lame in both feet. That's all we know at this point other than – so we assume he is he's, potentially an heir to the throne. Yes. Because he's the grandson of Saul. Son of Saul, yeah. Other than Saul oh, of Jonathan. Jonathan. Yeah, yeah, son of Jonathan. Other than that, it's yeah. like out of context. It's not mentioned at all. So we're going to come back to that later, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that they put it there. I don't even know why they put it there. I wonder, yeah. I've never – I've often thought it's a strange thing, but I've never actually looked at it and gone, what do the commentators think about why on earth it's, it's put there? 
because it just doesn't have any context with the rest of a chapter. Yeah. It could, that same chapter, that same verses could have been just spoken about when we talk about Mephibosheth yeah. in a few chapters time. Exactly. Yeah. It doesn't need to be there. So there's no context for it whatsoever. I bet you somebody's written a book about I it. I bet someone's done their PhD on it. I'm sure they <laughs> yeah. have. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So, um, so that happens there and then the fighting sort of continues. Verse five, uh, we won't sort of go into explaining who these characters are too much because it's there's two captains of Ishbosheth's army, basically. Okay. Yeah. So Rechab and Benar, the sons of Rimon, the Birathites, set out for the house of Ishbosheth, and they arrived there in the heat of the day while he was taking his noonday rest. They went into the inner part of the house as if to get some wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and his brother Banar slipped away. They'd gone into With the house. With his head. Well. They chopped off his head. Yes, yeah. it goes on. They'd gone into his house while he was lying on the bed in his bedroom. After they stabbed him and killed him, they cut off his head, taking it with them. And they travelled all night by way of Arabah. They brought the head to David at Hebron and said to the king, here's the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul. So he's, you know. Here's your enemy. Here he is. We got Look him. Look what we've done. Sounds like the Amalekite all over again, he doesn't it? tried to kill you. This day the Lord has avenged my Lord the King against Saul. Oh, we're going to get it good. David's going to be so excited with us. Mm. That's what they're thinking. David answered Rechab and his brother, um, As surely as the Lord lives who has delivered me out of every trouble, when someone told me Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and put him to death. That was the reward I gave him for the news. How much more when wicked, wicked men have killed an innocent man in his own house and on his own bed, should I not now demand his blood from your hands and rid the earth of you? So David gave an order to his men and they killed them. And they cut off their hands and feet and hung the bodies by the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in Abner's tomb at Hebron. That's pretty heavy, isn't it? Do, do you know the the reason for cutting off the hands and feet? No. Do you? No, I don't. But I was hoping you would. Um, I, I, I guess you hear about, about this happening when you watch um, like a crime show or whatever. That, yep. that happens sometimes so the person can't be identified or anything. Fingerprints? Maybe that wouldn't have been not, the issue back then, no, I don't think. I don't know. Yes, I don't know. Good maybe, call. Maybe no, I don't know. I don't think I've ever thought about that because they did the same with Saul and Jonathan, didn't they? They took his, they took their bodies to Beth Shan and hung them upside down and chopped off. The, I think they chopped off their hands and feet as well. The Philistines did. Well, they quite often hung them up, didn't they? Their yes, heads it was a public thing. A, yeah, a thing to say well, I was about. watching yeah. a television show on Prime at the moment about. Um, if you've seen it, I think it's on Prime or Paramount. One of the shows about um, uh, it's called Lioness. It's about these, un- oh, these yeah. undercover um, um, agents working in the Middle East, and you see them driving along, and there's in the, in Afghanistan, and they've got um, no in, in 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 Iran, and they're hanging bodies from cranes in the public square yeah. as a sign of it's, it's supposed to be a deterrent, I suppose, or we're, we're in control here, that sort of thing. So it probably was sim- something similar to that, but yeah. I'm not exactly sure on the. The head. One thing that has occurred to me, and I've never seen this before, but as you read it slowly and I was reflecting on your previous question about David and seeing something that maybe David did differently, they fully expected 
that where they would get a reward for killing Ishbosheth, who's the king of the part of the nation that David's trying to take over. And David seems to say Ishbosheth's innocent. Remember, he has just sent Abner on his way. To, Abner was ready to give him the king to basically depose Ishbosheth and make David king. The fact that David um, killed these guys because they killed Ishbosheth tells me something about David. I don't think David would have killed Ishbosheth. And yet that was common practice. And when a new, you see it in the book of Israel, you see, yeah. you see in the book in the nation in the king, the book of Kings, common practice when a new king comes to the throne, they immediately kill anybody who could potentially yep. be a, an heir to, who, who could could vie for the throne. Distant relatives would often it would happen in the Middle East. Those two sons that King Henry VIII took to the to the um, table, they were potentially heirs to the throne and took them to the tower. This was normal practice. But I reckon David wasn't going to kill Ishbosheth. Yeah. That's so, what I think too. Yeah. I've, got, I've got written down here, David wasn't like a usual king. He wasn't like Come a on. warlord. No, he wasn't a warlord. You know, wow. that's Because those warlord kings, they would put the heads of their enemies up on pikes yep. and, you know, yep. look at me, I'm, you come near me and you're going to Yeah. Copy. But that wasn't David. No, David was, it would appear that David was going to do a peaceful transition. Exactly. Yeah. And I wonder if he would have treated Ishbosheth with oh, – just coming back to me. Why have they inserted the Mephibosheth story right here? Because we're going to see that David yep. showed kindness to Mephibosheth. I wonder if David may have shown kindness to Ishbosheth mm. as well. I'm just spitballing. Well, they were both sons of Saul. They were both they? sons of Saul. One was oh, a son John, of Jonathan. Sorry. Yeah. So, yes, they were, that's he's in, in the line for the throne. But I wonder if David, because he calls him an innocent man. Yeah. And it's very clear Ishbosheth's a bit of a pawn in this whole thing. I wonder if David may have shown him kindness. Because does that make sense? Because that, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. why I reckon they've inserted. I reckon that's what, well, go and read that book. I reckon that's what that book you're talking about. Somewhat, I reckon that's what they're saying. Yeah. So Ishbosheth, he probably would have been invited to share David's table. Exactly. This same, would have been a peaceful transition and David would have invited him to the table. Yeah, because it's, remember, it's at Hebron. It's a place of unity and alliance and, <sighs> Jeff, that's, you know. Yeah. So this is something of the heart of David in the midst of the messed up society. There's something inside him that's dealing with people differently. Yeah. And um, <laughs> he seems to have a, a real sense of justice about yeah, him, doesn't he? He does. Because he's full of the Lord. Mm. That's, it, that can only, that can be the only thing that makes him so different from from the rest of them. And that's why he's set up as the, the model king. And they're looking all through the exilic period. They're going to look for another David. They're going to, yeah. the, the, the poets, the prophets are going to start to speak about one who will return the, not just the, they're not just seeing the return of the Davidic throne. They're actually, the prophets start to talk about another David. Yes. Because there's something about this man yep. that they want. I mean, he was, he was strong enough to stand up and fight for what he believed in. But he was just in that, wasn't he? Yes, he was. Which he is was, the heart of God, isn't it? Yep. You know, doing righting wrongs, yep. but also showing kindness and compassion at yeah. the same time. That that mixture of grace and truth yep. together. So I think that's what's going on. And that's a that's a hard thing for us to to kind of be, isn't it? As as representatives of Jesus, to be um, strong enough to stand up for what we believe in but still be compassionate and loving and merciful. Isn't it? And not, that, it's a tension you know, between the two, is, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And it's a, it's a tricky thing to, mm. to get right. Sometimes we get, we are on the side of grace and sometimes we are on the side of truth and yeah. sometimes we get it wrong. But 
it is. There's a messiness to it. Yeah. But that's great. Mm. This is a really good example, folks, as you're listening to this, of why it's good to study the scripture in converse, in community. Yeah. Because it's just two of us here. Yeah. I have read this chapter hundreds of times, literally hundreds of times in my life. And I've I've been aware of that whole thing of Mephibosheth. I've never looked it up, but here we are talking in conversation, thinking it through, yeah. and we've come – now, whether we're right or not, I'll have to go and study and work out whether or not this is what's going on. But there's a light going on. There's a revelation come on as we've talked. And you've picked up on the revelation too because I've made the point about how David was going to, um, you know, sh- you know, potentially rescue Mephibosheth. And you wrote down there in your study personally he wasn't a warlord. Yeah. So this is why it's good to study and talk about Scripture in community in a small group setting and uh, and th- wrestle with it. Don't be threatened by it because yeah. we find truth in it when we do that. Well, it is. And, and yeah, as we look at Scripture through that lens of the heart of God, things sort of make more sense, don't they? They do. Rather than yep. just the black and white that we read. Yep. Yeah. Go deeper behind the surface. Start to question motives. Say, why would they do that? Not just yeah. this is what they did, but why? What was going on in their world that would make them do that? And yeah. as you do that, you'll actually start to get um, – so you start to get a deeper level of illumination. The other question to ask is not just why did the characters do that? Ask why did the authors write it that way? Because mm. the author is always trying to tell their own story. They're trying to tell a story. and start, They're not just historical narrative, this happened, then this happened, and this happened. This is not how the Old Testament's written. No. It's written with a purpose. So it's been compiled with a purpose. It's been edited with purpose. So once we go deeper below the scenes, we can start to get this kind of illumination out of the scripture. Yeah. And that it's, I guess, reading through large chunks of scripture really helps us to get the the, the overall picture, doesn't it? Yes, Rather it does. than it's something that I've um, started to do with our men's Bible study. We used to, let's say, we'd study a chapter of scripture. We'd we'd start and we'd read one or two verses and we'd talk about those verses. But now we're reading right through the chapter. And considering the chapter before and the chapter after and think, how does that all fit together? And it just brings it alive so much more than all this little nitpicking and arguing over, over each one verse, little verse. You know, out or of one context. word. Yes. You know? And it yeah. that's not how the Bible's meant to be read, is no, it? No, it's like not. The Bible little, the verses came much, much later. Yeah. And they're useful for us to find chapter and verse, yeah. but it leads to the wrong way for scripture to be read. Scripture is supposed to be read in chunks, like you said. It's supposed to be Paul says, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. We've started to do that in our church here at The Rule. And I have chapters or or larger passages of Scripture read because that's how it was supposed to be read, not just, oh, let's just pick a verse out of context here. Yep. And I I guess in our society today we think, oh, wake up in the morning, get a quick verse into us and we're off to work or whatever. It's not the way to do it. It, it doesn't take that long to read a full chapter doesn't. or a couple of chapters. Nope. You know? Or stick it on in the car on the way there and you'll do two chapters, on, at yeah. least two chapters on the oh. way to work. If you Even if you're traveling 15 minutes, you'll get through two chapters. Of course, yeah. yeah, exactly. Anyway, that's good. That's great. All right. So that's where we're going to leave um, the book of Second Samuel for this podcast. Is that four? We've got five, haven't we? Or have we got another? We're, we've got a psalm. We've got a psalm, have yes, we? Yes, we've okay, got a psalm. Okay, we've got a psalm. All right. Psalm so we're going seven here. is where we're heading. Psalm seven. Rightio, we've turned to the Psalms and a lot of the Psalms have been written by David, haven't they? Yep. Or 
uh, David has asked his songwriters to write songs for him. True. Um, but anyway, this one, same, Psalm 7, uh, it says that this is a, a song that David wrote to the Lord concerning this person called Cush, who was a Benjamite. What do you know about Cush? Well, nothing until a couple of minutes ago. We were just <laughs> chatting in the break and, and I looked it up because it struck me. The only Cush I know of anywhere in the Bible is Cush way back the sons of Noah or something who became the Cushites who were the Africans people. So it struck me and I went, oh, I've never seen this before. And when I listen to my Bible, it doesn't give these little, the, the guy who reads it doesn't yeah. give these little um, headings to Psalms. Even when I open up the Version Bible, it skips straight to verse one and doesn't show it. So I had to scroll back. So I had a look. And there's a bit of conjecture because he's not mentioned anywhere in the Bible, but clearly it's a, he's writing this psalm. So the context of the psalm is going to give us something that it would appear that Cush was his enemy in some way and he's of the tribe of Benjamin. So the scholars seem to be saying something like he possibly was uh, one of Saul's confidants who was against David during that time when Saul was pursuing him. I just read there another scholar that said maybe he was – of Saul's ilk and era, but later on after Ishbosheth died and David has taken the, th- the throne, maybe this guy is trying to say, I don't recognize you as the king and he's trying to institute a new king or he's trying to fight against David as the king of all of united Israel. So I think that's just the specular- speculation, but I think it's helpful to have that context because then we're going to see that when we read this psalm, when you read it in a moment, it's written about someone who is an enemy of David. Yeah. Who is treating David unjustly. Yeah. It's good. It's always good to have a bit of context, isn't it? When it we is. Through this. And friends, these Psalms often have these little blurbs and they're useful to stop and read because they do give you context. It's they a bit are. like a parable. You read Jesus' parables. Often Jesus, there's a line in front of the parable that will tell tell you the context of why Jesus said the parable. Yeah. And it's a bit like that with the Psalms. Yeah. It's always, yeah, for sure. Okay. So let's read Psalm 7. It's not too long. So, Lord, my God, I take refuge in you. Save and deliver me from all who pursue me. Or they will tear me apart like a lion and rip me to pieces with no one to rescue me. Lord my God, if I have done this and there is guilt on my hands, if I have repaid my ally with evil or with cause, have robbed my foe, then let my enemy pursue and overtake me. Let him trample my life to the ground and make me sleep in the dust. Arise, Lord, in your anger. Rise up against the rage of my enemies. Awake, my God, decree justice. Let the assembled peoples gather around you while you sit enthroned over them on high. Let the Lord judge the peoples. Vindicate me, Lord, according to my righteousness, according to my integrity, O Most High. Bring to an end the violence of the wicked and make the righteous secure. You, the righteous God, who probes minds and hearts. My shield is God most high who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge, a God who displays his wrath every day. If he doesn't relent, he will sharpen his sword. He will bend and string his bow. He has prepared his deadly weapons. He makes ready his flaming arrows. Whoever is pregnant with evil conceives trouble and gives birth to disillusionment. Whoever digs a hole and scoops it out falls into the pit they have made. The trouble they cause recoils on them. Their violence comes down on their own heads. I will give thanks to the Lord because of his righteousness. I will sing the praises of the name of the Lord Most High. 
what a wonderful psalm. And can you imagine if you are Cush and this gets delivered to you? Ha! <laughs> yes, I've never thought about that. That's a good thing. Hey, Dave's got a letter for you. Yeah. 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 You'd be shaking in your you'd boots. You'd be shaking in your boots, you? wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think this, this psalm gives us a wonderful insight into David's heart, really, and his... He, his ideas of righteousness and justice. Would you agree with that? Yeah, that that theme comes up time and time again. That he wants to vindicate the he wants God to vindicate the righteous and bring justice against the injustice of the, the way the, the, the wicked people are operating in the world. Mm. Yeah. Yes, and there's a, there's a part there where he uh, he says. Um, let the Lord vindicate me according to my righteousness, according to my integrity. And it sounds like you can read that and think, oh, David's, you know, puffing up his chest and saying, you know, I deserve to be looked after because I'm so righteous. But as I read through this and sort of once again look through that lens of of um, the heart of God, I, I sort of, I think David understands that his righteousness is because he's a follower of God. Good. Yeah. You know, Which is Psalm 51. It says, create in me a clean heart, O God, David yeah. says, because yeah. he realizes that there's nothing in him that's good. He, his righteousness comes from God. David had that understanding definitely. That's right. And yeah. I think it it probably is beneficial for us as Christians to understand that we have righteousness mm. as well because we have Christ in us and because of what he's done, we have righteousness, not yep. because of anything that – We've done, but yes, but then we can fully expect that. that we can stand on that, and it's not wrong to ask God to vindicate us because not only for our own righteousness, but because we're righteous. In, yes, that we that we seek our heart is for Him, and that He will He will seek to do the right by us. Definitely, yeah. I don't think that's wrong. I think some streams of Protestant Christianity might see that as arrogant, but I think you said if if the centered righteousness is in. Christ being our righteousness, I think it's a valid prayer. Yeah, God, put right the things where people are treating me wrongly, where where I've been falsely accused. Would you go to war against that and bring justice there? And any victim of any kind of abuse or crime, that's a valid cry of the heart, isn't it? Mm. To say, God, that was unfair. That was unjust. I was abused. I was treated poorly there and expect that God will honor that. Yes, that's right. God is just. Yes. And and I think it's fine for us to be saying things like whoever digs a hole and scoops it out, they should fall into it. You know, come on, God, you know. Put right the things that are wrong. Let's, yeah, get things happening here. Yeah, and, and it starts by, he starts the the psalm by acknowledging his own heart and going, hey, if there's anything in me, yeah, um, fix it, Lord. You know, I don't deserve, you know, if, if I'm wrong here, you know, what's he say? He says, if there's any, if I have betrayed my friend or plundered my enemy without cause, then let my enemies capture me. So he's not arrogant in his prayer. He's looking, doing some soul searching in yeah. himself to make sure his heart is right. Um, it's a little, it's, it sort of strikes me as a little bit of Job language here, you know. Lord, I've done everything right. I, you know, it seems like vindicate me for my righteousness here. Yeah. So I don't know. I think problem the problem with Job is that he at times did focus on his own self-righteousness, whereas here David doesn't seem to be doing that. He seems yeah. to be focusing on... His heart is pure because God has made him pure. Yeah, that's right. And mm. it's, he's come to that understanding, hasn't he? And, and he seems to have, yeah. It's uh, 
I don't know, it's a bit of a frustration of mine through the years that to try to get people to understand that they are righteous when they come to Christ. We are the righteousness of God in Christ. Mm-hmm. And we're no longer slaves to sin. Mm-hmm. We don't have to yep. let things that happened to us in the past dictate the way we live now because we're the righteousness of Correct. Christ. Yep. Yeah. Correct. There's a there's a verse in Titus three. Verse three says says, once we too were foolish and disobedience. We were misled and become slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of evil and envy, and we hated each other. But when God our Savior revealed his kindness and love, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth with new life through the Holy Spirit. I think Paul is trying to say this this whole thing here. Pre-Christ, we we think we're good and we're not. Mm. Post-Christ... We think we're bad and we're good. We're righteous. Yeah, yeah. So I think yeah. I, I heard Ken Chant say many years ago, irrespective of some good things we did pre-Christ, we are unrighteous. But irrespective of some bad things we may do in Christ, we are righteous. Yeah. And so it's this mindset shift. It's not arrogant to call ourselves righteous. It's actually to call ourselves worms. And there's a, there's a place for a genuine repentance, but to live in that sense of I'm a worm, I'm nothing, it actually makes light of what Christ has done for us, which has given us his righteousness. Yes. There comes a point at which we have to go, yes, there's nothing, Paul says, I'm convinced there's nothing good in me. However, in Christ, I am righteous. And there needs to be a sense of, I'm going to own that. Not in an arrogant way, but if I don't own that, I am belittling the work of Christ and what yep. he's done for me. I agree. Yeah. Perfectly. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Well, I think that's uh, for the Old Testament. To the end of our Old Testament. All right, we're going to the book of Acts, aren't we? Yep, we'll be back shortly. Okay, here we go in the New Testament. We're uh, reading from the book of Acts and chapter 21 this time. Now, what's happened here in Acts 21, Paul is uh, embarked on a journey um, and he goes all over the place. He goes to Greece and Cyprus and Syria and Israel and it's a, it, you know, it's not just a, you know, a half day sail around the... No, this is the, the third of his missionary journeys. Yeah. yeah. It's quite... It's a big one, isn't quite it? Quite extensive. He, he, um, he didn't muck around, did he, Paul? No, he got around. He certainly did. And, um, you know, even though Paul was uh, one of the, the apostles, you know, you don't call yourself an apostle unless you're, a, a, you know, a big deal in the church. Even though he was one of the apostles and he heard from God, he still listened to the people, didn't he? Uh, we, we, as we read through chapter 21 here, we see times where the people, you know, they knelt and they prayed with him and they... You know, they give him all these warnings about, you know, if you go there, this is going to happen and that's going to happen. And he always listens to them. He doesn't always do what they say. He doesn't always bend his will to theirs, but he's he's a listener. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's important as a as a leader in a church that we we listen to people. Actually, that's you know? that's vital. In fact, in our other podcast, Jill and I have been talking about that in the podcast that will be coming out this week as we record this. We're talking about facing discouragement and how 
we we don't have to bend our will to every discouraging voice that someone has. If we do that, we're going to be shoved from pillar to post. But Paul's a good model of this, that even though there might be discouraging voices or counter voices, we still listen to them. We we have to look for elements of truth and recognize that that's their experience. And whether it will change us or not is doesn't mean we should be arrogant and dismissive of people because it's their lived experience. Exactly, yeah. And whether, whether they're, you know, more mature than us in the faith yep. or older than us in age or younger or, you know, everybody has something that they can they offer, bring to they? the table, you know, and, yeah. and that's uh, how we become uh, more rounded people, isn't it? By great. listening to L- lifelong learning, Jeff. Yeah. Yeah. But you, you know, for Paul to do it, man, that says, that says something about the man. It's a good role model for us. If Paul can do it, yeah, then we can be committed to lifelong learning as mm, well. Yeah. For sure. Okay. So, um, so Paul's hanging out with the people and, he, you know, he jumps back on the ship and um, in verse 8 it says, Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. Okay, so Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. One of the seven. What does that mean, Pastor Rowan? One of the seven. This is the original seven that way back in probably Acts chapter 6, I'm guessing. You got it in your notes there? Uh, going to go six. Yes, it is. It is. Yeah. It is. Acts, Acts chapter, chapter six, six yeah. uh, where they, um, the apostles, there was, there was some tension in the church because they, they, some people were being overlooked in the distribution of food. And the apostles said, look, we can't handle all this on our own. We need to focus on prayer and the preaching of the word. So they appointed seven men, deacons in the church. Philip was one of those. Mm-hmm. And uh, Stephen was one of those. He, so there's six left at this point at Lewin, well, assuming the others are still alive. Stephen had been killed. He was one of those original seven. And uh, that's that's he, that's what he was became known as Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. Yeah, and you know I I love this story because, you know he they get asked to basically they they're just waiters, aren't they? And and what dish pigs, if you like, and, uh, and doing I, that I suspect sort of thing. it's a bit more than that, um, because this is there's thousands of people in the church, so these are people who are being charged with the responsibility of making sure that there's distribution. So they've got okay. some kind of they're not just collecting an offering or doing something beautiful and special. They're doing more than that. They are, there is some organizational attributes to these these people and their role in the yeah. church. They're doing a little bit more than that. Um, but nonetheless, their attitude was, we want to release our leaders to do what they can do. Yep. Pastor Phil always says, if you're doing what somebody else could be doing, you're not doing what only you can do. Yes, that's and good, isn't it? That yeah. is good. And I think that's what the apostles recognized here. Yeah. And so they released these people. So these people were people of influence. I mean, there's thousands of people and they're picking. What, the fact they were known as one of the seven tells me this is like the tier two of leadership within the church, in the yeah, early sure. church. So these are significant leaders in the church that he was known by. But nonetheless, their attitude was, we're going to give, we're going to release others. We'll do what we can do. We'll, we'll add our gifts to, to the to the table, literally, to feed people, we'll do that so that our leaders can be released to do what they can do. Yeah, right. And, you know, I always think of the, these guys kind of when people are getting fed, sort of walking around and saying, how's it all going, you know, whether or not they're actually cooking the food or whatever, but, you know, walking around and saying, "How how's everything, how's your mother, how's your family? That's what I see. It's a pastoral you know, thing. And this relationship builds up and what happens? They grow and... Um, Philip becomes this evangelist. Yes, he does. Because, you know, of his serving the church. Yep. And that's how we grow, isn't it? That's exactly. how we become leaders in the church, by serving the church. By serving. And this is yep. many, many years later. By this time, Philip is an older man mm. and he's got daughters as well. So That's right. But the 
there's another time we read about Philip in Acts chapter 9, 10. No, it's not 10. It must be 9. Um, when Philip the evangelist goes to Samaria and preaches there. So he's one of the seven. He goes to Samaria and preaches, and Peter and John go there, and then he goes and meets the Ethiopian eunuch. This is the same guy. Yeah, okay. So he's an evangelist from the early stages. Yeah. It's yeah. just it's wonderful, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. They start out as start know, out as serving and God builds that gift in yeah. them. Yeah. Become lead, great leaders in the yeah. church. Mentioned in the Bible. Wow. Absolutely. And the way to a promotion in God's kingdom, fulfilling your purpose, is always through serving. Jesus said the last first shall be last and the last shall be first. Yeah. Take the lowest seat at the banquet. Mm. Be willing to serve others. As I'm I'm among you as one who has served, Jesus said. So you should do the same. Service service is always the way to success in God's kingdom. Yeah, for sure. And you mentioned this, that he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. I think that's probably an important point to mention there, do you think? I think it's worth mentioning. Why do you think it's worth mentioning, Jeff? (laughs) Well, because they're females and they were playing a a huge part in the church as as prophetesses, I suppose, you, you might call them. Yep. You know. We, I guess we believe, don't we, that in our church that, you know, women play an equal role with yep. men. Yep. So. Um, we are egalitarian is what it's called. Egalitarian. Yep. Okay. Yep. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that, I think. Yeah, as yeah. As far as I'm. Yeah, and that's, it seems to be that these women have got a position of influence. And this is the church in Caesarea, mm. which is um, the capital city of Judea. This is. This is where Pontius Pilate hung out. This is the capital city. This is a significant church, a significant city um, at the time of at the time at this time. Probably, really, in the Roman Empire, this was more significant than the city of Jerusalem to the Romans. Right. Yep. So uh, let's read on. After um, so he had these four prophet daughters, and it says after we'd been there a number of days, a prophet. This is another, another prophet, prophet comes along named Agabus. He came down from Judea. Uh, Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. So this is a warning from the prophet. Do you think, I can't think of any times anyway where I've heard prophetic warnings really in the church? Do you think it's a, a thing that applies to us today? Well, this is New Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would have to say it does apply. I, I think we need to recognize that this man is a recognized prophet. Yep. So this isn't you, me, as you know, we might not have a recognized prophetic ministry. Yep. This is someone who has been recognized collectively as someone who can speak for the Lord. Um, so I think that we should allow space for that. Um, but this is not public prophecy in the sense of this is to Paul. Mm, yeah. you know, there were others gathered around, but this isn't standing in front of the whole church and or putting it on social media and proclaiming it's everybody. So I think let's put it in its context. It was a warning to Saul. I wonder if it was a the, – the, Saul's certainly not going if to – if it's a warning, Saul's not going to heed the warning. Because they goes on, it says, you know, they all say, well, please don't go to Jerusalem if this is going to happen to you. Verse 13, Paul says, why all this weeping? You're breaking my heart. I'm ready to not only be jailed in Jerusalem, but even to die for the yeah. sake of the Lord Jesus. So if it's a warning, he's not receiving it as a warning. Could it be 
that, well, well, I guess the question is what was Agabus's intention yeah. in producing this? Was it trying to tell Paul not to go or was it just saying, hey, Paul, get you're ready. going, get ready. This is what's going to happen yeah. and it's to let you know that this is going to happen so you're not caught off guard. Yeah. Okay. And I think if you look at the context, that one makes more sense to me. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. Because Paul was going to Jerusalem with the intention of eventually going to Rome. We see that through his letters. He's taking money. In this trip, he's taking money to Jerusalem that has been gathered up. Uh, It's all the 2 Corinthians stuff about 8 and 9 about money. Mm -hmm. He's gathered up money from around Greece and Macedonia and he's taking it to the Jews in Jerusalem as an offering to the Jewish Christians. He's expecting to offer that and then go to Rome. And that was his full intention. What maybe Agabus is saying is, hey, when you get there, it's not going to work out the way you thought it was going to work out. You're actually going to get arrested in Jerusalem. And so maybe it was a, a, it was a necessary shift. It was like the Lord saying, hey, you're on the right track, Paul, but you haven't quite got it worked out yet. I'm going to send a prophet who's going to speak to you and show you the way yep. that it's going to happen. Because in the end, Paul does get to Rome, but he gets to Rome as a prisoner. He doesn't get yes. to Rome himself. And this is going to come two years after this. He's going to have all the shipwreck and eventually end up in Rome. So I think it's more not a warning saying don't go. It's more a warning of saying, hey, it might not work out you think, the way you think it's going to be, but are you up for it anyway? Yeah. Don't lose heart when don't it lose does heart. happen because yeah. you've been forewarned. You've been forewarned, which means God's okay. And that maybe that was that shift in Paul where he goes, okay, well, if that's it, if I get to Jerusalem and that's the end of it, I'm ready for that. Yeah. I've got these dreams of going to Rome and going to Spain, but if, hey, if God's got other plans, so be it. Yep. It's almost like he has to surrender his plans over to God and say, God, I'm your vessel. Mm. I've made, what is it? Proverbs says um, something like uh, a man makes plans in his own heart, but God orders them or something yeah. something to that effect. And we have to get comfortable with, nothing wrong with making plans, but we need to realize that we're ultimately uh, reliant upon the Lord and we have to surrender our plans to his plan. Yeah, okay. And it, it just reminds me of, when Jesus said, you know, these all these things are going to happen, so don't be surprised when, you know, yep. wars happen and yep. all, all this the sort of stuff, stuff he says in Luke 24. Yeah. Absolutely. It's all yep. going to happen. It's all going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so, yeah, I don't really know uh, whether that really answered the question. Ask the about, question again and let me help. About Should we have prof- warnings? Yeah. The, well, let's, let's uh, I don't know, if, if people come to you with a like a a foretelling of what's going to happen if you you know take on another church or mm-hmm. you know if you um, step up in ministry or whatever it mm-hmm. may be, would you take notice of? Depends on who they are. I suppose, it does depend. First of all, it depends yeah. on who they are. Yeah. Yep, because this man's a recognised prophet. Mm-hmm. So if it's someone that has a recognised prophetic voice, I would definitely take notice of it. Um, then we'd I'd probably I would. I don't presume to be Paul. So I would presume to then go to speak to my pastors and my leaders and say, hey, let's talk this through. What, you know, this is what I'm hearing. Or, or in the case of it might be someone in our church who has a recognized prophetic voice, yep. might talk to our leadership team or our board and go, hey, what do we do with this? Is this a, a warning to not go down that path? Or is this just like this? It's just you're on the right track, but maybe it's not going to work out the way you thought. So that's I would cool. always figure it out in community. And I think that's what we see in the New Testament. Um, we didn't see in the Old Testament is that, we see in Acts 15, a few chapters before this, they figure out God's will in the sense of community. Yep. So I, that's what I would do. I would definitely, I've got, there's a notable four or five prophetic voices across our three locations that I take 
significant notice of. Yeah, good. Because I know those people have got a proven prophetic voice. It may not change what we do, but more often than not, it does shape that because I, we're just one of the gifts as pastors and leaders. We're one of the fivefold ascension ministries. Yeah. Prophets is another one. So I would listen to it. What I'm dubious of is is people self-proclaimed prophets coming and saying, "Thus saith the Lord." Yeah. Yep. Um, I think Agabus has got skin in the game. Yep. He's recognised. So I would, as a leader, I would listen to people who've got skin in the game, not just self-proposed, um, you know prophet who doesn't really have any skin in the game in our context, in our church. Someone comes in and says, you need to be doing this. You're not doing that. I'm probably not going to listen to that necessarily with the same weight as I would if it was someone who, yep. who's who got skin in the game. I think that's healthy for for yourself as a you know, senior pastor of the church to um, yeah, work it out in community. Yeah, sure. work it out in community. Don't yeah, None of us off, pastors off should think own. that we are on our own. We're, we're not the be all and end all. We're, we're part of God's leadership team. Yep. And that, a lot of the problems we've seen, seen in the Western church, I think, have have come down to this sense of untouchableness of the pastor. Yes, exactly. So I think God is shifting us back towards leadership and community, thinking things through, talking things through. Yeah. And I've I've regularly changed my perspective or, or you know, we've, we've sat in staff meetings with you and I've had thoughts and then you've brought other perspectives and I've gone, I think I missed that. Or it needs to at least be changed direction or maybe I'm being a bit naive and assuming that everyone will be ready for that change or whatever. That's, that's part of... Yeah. Figuring it out in community, I think. That's good. Yep. Yeah. Good stuff. Okay, so um, Paul journeys on and he arrives in Jerusalem. Which is only about probably 60 or 70, 80 kilometres this drive. It's a drive today. So, you know, it's not a long way from Caesarea. It's a day and a half's journey probably on a horseback or something. Yeah, sure. Okay. So um, verse 19, it says, Paul greeted them, the, the people. Leaders of the church. Brothers and sisters there. Um, Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When I read that, I thought, no, great. We should do that more often, shouldn't we? We should talk about what good things have been happening in the church down the road or, you know, our sister churches or whatever, you know. It's great. I I don't think we do that enough. I think you're right. I think it would be really healthy. I think it would be. I think that the challenge I often have with that is even in our own movement, is like the average person in our church doesn't know much about our C3 movement context. I mean, you as a pastor do, but average person doesn't. So I'm always wary of, you know, if we always just talk about everything bigger and people think, well, what's that got to do with us? And we've got to find that balance between day-to-day on-the-ground church life, even our sister locations in in our other three, you know, across our three locations. Most people in the church don't have that context, but I think there is, we should be wanting to celebrate what God is doing in other places. Because that, if we're genuinely interested in a building the kingdom and not our local church or our empire, we should be doing that. We should be celebrating. Yeah. And that's what's happening here. Paul's reporting to these Jerusalem elders about what God's done all over Greece and Turkey and all around the place. Yeah, yeah that's right. And, yeah, the Gentiles are coming to Christ. That's so right. It's They're being included, you yep. know. And, and as he goes on, he, he as he tells them this, the the – the Jews there, they say, well, that's great, but 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 people are starting to say that you're to have turned your back on, you know, on God's law, mm-hmm. whatever. So, as a gesture, you know, go and shave your head and pay for a few other boys to do that, and so you can all kind of prove that you're you're still on our side. Yep. And so, so Paul, in his wisdom, 
uh, you know, wanting to be all things to all people, he says, okay, I'll shave my head and, you know. I'll and, do a vow and I'll, yeah. I'll pay for others. And because I'll, I haven't forgotten that stuff. No. I'm still, you know. Well, Paul will say, to the Jew, I live like a Jew. To the Gentile, I live like a Gentile. I become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. Yeah. So his mentality was always, I'm, I exist so that I can win people to Jesus. Yeah, and that's what he does here. He, he doesn't need to live by the Jewish law. He makes that very clear. But all of these Jews in Jerusalem, this is interesting, isn't it? All these Jews in Jerusalem are still observing, um, you know, still observing Torah and they're still eating kosher and all those things, even though they've been Christians for many years. That's right. So we, we have to think about that because that might sound strange to us Gentile Christians that that there are Jewish Christians and there is still today. Yeah. Messianic Jewish Christians who who keep uh, who absorb Torah who observe Torah as Messianic Christians. Yeah. Well, I don't say it's, it's not doing any harm. I wouldn't. Think. Well, that's what they say. They would say, no, this is actually it's instruction to yeah. us. Yeah. That's why we do it. Mm. So they they have a bit of a chat about it, and they decide that okay, we'll 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 go along with it. We'll let Gentiles become believers and sort of join with us, but. There's a few things that they say we want you to tell them that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals and from sexual immorality. So there's these four things that they – is it four things, three things? Four things, yep, you got them right. Yep. These are the four why, things. Why these four things? Do you know what these are representative of? Um, these four things come out of Acts 15. Mm-hmm. The last time Paul was in Jerusalem, he brings Barnabas with him and they have this debate because the Jews have come to Antioch and said everyone needs to be circumcised. So Paul and Barnabas go there and they have this big t- conversation in Acts 15. It's the first church council yeah. and they come to these four things it's, that you mentioned and th- they give the reason. They say, we want you Jews. You don't need to be circumcised. G- Gentiles, we don't expect you to be circumcised, but we ask you to obey these four things, the four that you mentioned. And then it gives a reason in Genesis, in, in Acts 15. It says, because these things have been practiced in Jewish synagogues for a long time. The reason these four things are a big deal is it's saying, we're prepared to give you some concessions. You don't have to observe Torah, but we don't, we're asking that you out of com- kindness and compassion towards the Jews would be willing to forego a few things so that you don't unnecessarily create um, tension yeah. and bring a rift that doesn't need to be there between Jews and Gentiles. So it's a, it's a mutual concession. The Jews were coming and saying, you have to be Jewish. And the Gentiles were going, we don't have to be Jewish at all. This is a mutual concession saying, no, you don't have to be Jewish at all, but could you do, could you do a few things just to show us that you're on, you're on with us? You, you, because these things will be offensive. If you, yeah, sexual yeah. immorality, obviously, but meat of strangled animals and, and blood and those sorts of things. These are things that will de- be deeply offensive to the Jews. Even though Paul says, I can eat meat sacrificed to an idol or whatever, he's saying, for the sake of your love for your Jewish brothers and sisters, I'm asking you not to do that. Yeah. Right. And, and this is some years later and they're still reiterating that same letter. They're, going, they're saying to Paul, do those, we want you to do those four things that we asked you to do yep. all those years ago. And, you know, the same would <coughs> apply to us today. I mean, you wouldn't go to Israel today, I suppose, and go, hey, give us those ham sandwiches and, you know. Totally. You know, yep. and wave it in front of their faces. And well, the same on, thing you know, too is you go to Israel today and you go to the churches. They they ask you, please don't wear shorts inside the church. Yeah. 
Now, to me, I'm quite happy to walk into a church with shorts on if it's 35 degrees in Israel. Yeah. But out of respect for the Orthodox believers and the Catholic believers that are there, and that those, I'm going to put on long pants, not yes. because I need to, but it's a sign of respect and love. Yeah. It don't cause another to stumble. And yep. that should be a principle we all live by all through our life. It certainly should be. Mm. Yeah. In verse 27, we see um, there's a bunch of Jews from, it says, from Asia, um, so the, from the province of Asia. So can you explain? The, the province of Asia is modern-day Turkey. So there's Galatian, Galatia, Colossae, uh, Ephesus. Yes, so it's it's half of Paul's letters, basically. It's. I've often wondered why Asia and Southeast Asia don't have different names. It's confusing, it is, isn't it? Yeah, it's, worth, it's yeah. worth mentioning. Whenever you read Asia in the, in the Bible, I think I may have mentioned this at some other point, when you read Asia in the New Testament – You've got to get away from China. Yeah. You've got to get away from our Asia. Yeah. The province, there was a Roman province of Asia, Asia, which is essentially modern day Turkey. Yeah. That's the way to think of it. That's right. And, and I know in Europe, quite often when they refer to Asia, they're talking about India and Pakistan and it's just. It's confusing. confusing. Yes, it is. Yeah. I think, I, I may be wrong here, but I think it's something to do with the, the etymology of the word Asia has something to do with east. Yeah, okay. It's something like that. So to the Romans, yeah, yeah. you got you got to go east to get to Turkey. So I think that's – don't hold me to that. I haven't Googled it, but that's just in the back of my recesses of mine somewhere, which would then make sense because then obviously once they've – once, you know, the, the world has moved further, that is further east. All yeah. of what we call Asia today is far to the east. Yeah, sure. Yes. So we would be considered the Asia of New Zealand. We would – no, that's west <laughs> – he, he, he's, oh, it's West, New Zealand it? yeah. would be considered our Asia. Yeah, right. Yes, yep. I think that's right. Gotcha. So we're part of Australasia. Yes, it's all part of that yeah, yeah. eastern yep. region. Yep. 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 Okay. And and yeah, so these these Jews in Asia they stir up trouble uh, because Paul's getting involved with the Gentiles and preaching Jesus to them. Um, and it's never stopped, has it? No. Nope. It's still there's still arguments over it today. Yes, there know? is indeed, and, and killing and. All kinds My of horrible goodness, stuff. Blowing people up and all that sort of stuff. Yep. So. Anyway, I'm pretty well done with Acts uh, chapter 21, I think. Yep. So Acts 21, he just gets arrested because he's preaching and he's about to get killed and they rescue him. It's probably worth just saying yeah. that's the context of where that's we're going. So we're going to 22 next. Yes, we're going yeah, to 22. So he's been arrested and he's about to be killed by a mob and so the Roman legions come in and take him. And they want to they want to arrest him. They want to flog him. And he says, "No, no, I'm a Roman citizen. Yes, can I speak to the crowd?" He's pretty cluey, isn't he? Paul? He's pretty switched on. I think the Roman citizen will come later. Actually, thinks on his feet. He does think on his feet. Yeah, but I wonder if it's because he knew that he was going to be arrested here. Well, then. So, yeah. the, oh, this is it. I'm being arrested now. Yeah, maybe he has had time to think about it. Mm -hmm. If they try and arrest me, I'll just. This is what I'll do. I'll have yeah. a chance. This will be my chance to speak to the Jews because Paul's Paul was a Jew of Jews. He last time we see Paul doing anything public in Jerusalem, he's um, the, he's at the stoning of Stephen. And then all the other times he's been in Jerusalem, it's all subtle and behind the scenes in the church. And this is his chance to preach. He's, I think Paul's thinking, oh, this is my chance to preach to the Jews. I mean, I'm a Jew. I want to preach to the Jews. I've been, I've been the Gentiles, but I, yeah, the yeah. Jews still live in my heart. I'm going to get my moment to preach to the Jews. So that's yeah. what we're going to see as we go into 22. It's like Paul goes, ah, oh, this is my moment. I'm going to preach to the Jews. Maybe he's even thinking, I wonder if I can convince any of them. Spoiler alert, we're going to see they weren't convinced. 
<laughs> Maybe there was a few. Maybe a few. That we but know it about. just reiterated again that Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles. So we'll go on to 22 then? Yeah. Yep. Let's go to 22. Chapter 22 in the book of Acts. So in, in uh, chapter 22, the, big, the first part here, Paul is recounting his conversion experience, isn't he, to the, yeah. to the Jews? We should give the context. The last verse of chapter 21, the commander agrees. Paul wants to speak to them. So as Paul stood on the stairs, motioned to the people to be quiet, there was a deep silence over this mob that had arrested him. Uh, he was trying to kill him and he addressed them in their own language, Aramaic. So he's been speaking Greek, but now he's talking to them in their language. So mm. that's sort of chapter verse 40 belongs with chapter 22, really. <coughs> and then the speech begins, which you're talking about now. Yeah, sure. Do, do we want to talk about this? I guess we probably should. Not everyone would know this, would they? That um, we don't have to probably go through the whole thing. But no, but, you know, Paul was, well, about noon, Paul was walking along uh, near Damascus and a bright light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Verse 8, he says, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus of Nazareth, who you are persecuting, he replied. So when I read that, I thought, wow. He sees this bright light, falls to the ground, and he says, Who are you, Lord? I wonder, would, would we say that? Who are you? Or would we just assume that? Um, <coughs> Excuse me. Poor Pastor Rowan's had a bit of a cough. Been hanging around for a few weeks. But he's doing well. He's doing well. Hanging in there. Let's encourage him. Thank you. Keep going, brother. All right. <laughs> I shall. I think it, with, with all the, I don't know, movies and things that we've, you know, watched and absorbed over the years, if we saw a bright light and this voice speaking to us, we probably would set our minds to, what is this, some demon or something speaking to right. me? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, is as that, opposed to thinking it's a, an it's a heavenly or a vision. heavenly voice or whatever. Mm. Did, would you agree with that, do you think? Or? Yeah, I wonder if that would be more the conditioning that we would experience, yeah. Yeah. You wouldn't automatically assume that it was a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good point. And yet in the Bible, we when this happens, Old Testament and New, it's always God showing up, isn't it? Yeah. When you think about it, it's always an angel. Well. Or, you know what I'm saying? It's, yeah. <coughs> it's always an angel coming and appearing Yeah. when these bright moments happen. I can't think of one where the devil appears like this. No. Although all. Paul does say... The devil appear, you know, disguises himself as an angel of light. Paul does say that. But yeah. I can't see a record of it though. But anyway, I think it's – all right, so let's say something like this does happen. Let's just say who are you. Hmm. Uh, I assume whoever <laughs> appears is going to tell you the truth. I don't know. Maybe, yeah. maybe not. Y yeah. So, you know, because this, this story is recounting – Paul's Damascus Road experience many years before. Yeah. So there's three accounts in the book of Acts of this experience. When it actually happened in Acts 9, Acts 8, Acts 8 or 9, 9 I think, when it um, 
went here and then he's going to refer he's going to tell the story again in front of King Agrippa um a little bit later on as well so I think it's three times it happened so it was a significant moment it was it was his Damascus road experience well yeah. he, the term has come across into yes. modern vernacular as that life changing moment so um I think I think Paul definitely was able to um recognize this is as as a significant moment in his life as God speaking to him because I guess your question is, how did he know that was God? Could he have thought that that was the devil, devil deceiving him well, or something like that? Well, he didn't really know, did he? He just said, who are who you? Who are you, Lord? Yes, that's right. Um, yeah. I guess he believed. <laughs> well, I, mm. I guess if God speaks to us, we're going to know. Yeah, I, maybe that's the point. There's, there's, maybe there's there, no question I about can't this. see yeah. why there would be any doubt. Yeah. yeah. If you've got doubt, it's probably not God. It's probably not God. That's a good point. Because when he says, who are you, Lord? And we read it in the original account. He says, I'm Jesus. Yeah. You know, he says it here too. Jesus, whom you are. I know, he doesn't say it. He doesn't get up. Yeah, whom he you does. are persecuting. Yeah, I'm Jesus, whom you, whom you are persecuting. So Jesus revealed himself. Yeah. And Paul will talk about this moment years later. And he will actually claim this moment as his right to be an apostle. Because the apostles were those who appeared with, who hung out with Jesus. Mm. And Paul will say um, he appeared to first to Peter after his resurrection. I think it's 1 Corinthians 15. He says he appeared first to Peter and then to the 12 and then to 500 others. And last of all, he appeared to me as one who is abnormally born or out of born out of time. So he didn't have a relationship with Jesus that all the other apostles had, but he claims this moment as his Jesus revelation moment. Yeah. 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 Mm. So I think, yeah, I think there was no doubt in his mind who he, who he was speaking to. Yeah, in verse 10 he says, what shall I do, Lord? And Jesus says, get up, go off, um, go into Damascus and then, you know, things will happen. Things that have been assigned will happen. So, so what Paul's trying to do here is he starts his conversation by saying, hey, guys, I'm a Jew too. Here's my story. I was one of the Pharisees of Pharisees. I was trained under Gamaliel, the leader in this place. He's trying to authenticate his Jewish heritage. He said, I persecuted Christians until this experience happened. And they're still listening intently at this point. So he's trying to prove his Jewishness and his validity at this point, all the way through this story. And they do it and they listen. They listen to him all the way through until after the Lord says to him, because uh, you, do you want to read any more or do you want to just... Oh, no, no, that's fine. Yep, so keep he keeps going. He gets baptized. And he returns to Jerusalem. He was praying in the temple. He says in verse 17, fell into a trance. And I saw a vision of Jesus saying, hurry, leave Jerusalem, for they're not going to accept you. And he's going, but Lord, they don't know who I am. This is way back. Last time I was here, a few days ago, I was sent with letters from the chief priest to go to Damascus and to, um, you know, to c- command Christians to be thrown in jail. I, I was authorized... Surely my conversion is going to be enough of a witness to them. But Jesus says, no, that's not what you're here for. Yeah. It's not what you're here for. And he argues with them. And the Lord said, go, for I'm going to send you away to the Gentiles. Verse 22, the crowd listened until Paul said that word. Yes. The moment he says Gentiles, they just go, rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. Yep. So that was an inflammatory comment. And it was, that was almost like for Paul, that was like the last straw. Uh, it was like a, an awakening moment for Paul. Yeah. I'm never going to be able to convince the Jews. That's not my calling. Yeah. Well, I guess it is. I mean, and you can't blame the people. They were taught they were and taught. taught and taught and taught yep. to keep yourself 
set apart for yep. the Lord. Yep. No intermarriage, no... That's right. No eating with Jews, uh, with... With Gentiles. Gentiles, no. That's right. No nothing. Yep. You know? Yep. Which, well. which of course, they did because it was financially... Con- yes, for the Sadducees, it was them. very convenient yeah. for them. Yes, that's right. But... For the ruling elite. But as far as the... the Mm. Religious beliefs. When, That's right. No, that ain't going to happen. Yeah. No. So, um, so yeah, so they, they stir things up again. No, no, no. And they're shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust Get in rid the of air. And all the stuff, you know, the, that they do, the quite animated sort of oh, yes. stuff they always did. Yep. And in verse 25, um, as they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing, standing there, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? That's his trump card, isn't it? It's his trump Paul. card. Yep. I'm a Roman citizen. He learned the hard way that he should have used that. When he was in Philippi, <laughs> yeah. he got flogged and then he said, they beat me even though I'm a Roman citizen. He said, that's never going to happen to me again. So he pulled out his trump card. Yep. Yeah. That's right. Um, okay, so he pulls out his trump card and that kind of – Settles things down a bit. The you know the commander goes. Yeah, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna touch you now. You're not know, allowed this, to. This guy's got to have his have his day in court, and so this all starts to happen. Um, Paul's taken before the Sanhedrin, which is the the Jewish ruling leaders. Yep, correct. The aristocracy, um, and things sort of move on into chapter twenty three from there. Okay. Yep. Okay. We're see a long journey of Paul in trial now. Court yes. cases. Yep. Yeah. All right, we'll go to 23. Okay. Chapter 23, verse 1. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience conscience to to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. (coughs) You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. So Paul didn't know that Ananias was the high priest, otherwise he wouldn't have said that. That's right. Because they go on to say, how dare you insult the high priest? And Paul's like, brother, I didn't know that. I'm sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Settle down. I wonder if there's a little bit of David in there. It's like the whole touching the Lord's anointed thing, you know, because he was being treated like Saul. Ananias was treating him against the law, but he still had that reverence for the the office, the anointing that was on him. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a a good lesson for us. Mm. Yeah. For sure. Yep. Yep. Verse 6, then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others were Pharisees, he he called out in the Sanhedrin, my brothers, I am a Pharisee descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. This is another kind of trump Trump card card as well. It's clever. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. My question is, what do the Sadducees believe? Um, if there's no resurrection, no... Yeah. 
Um, I'm not exactly sure what they did believe. I I have to do my research. I I have learned it. I know the the Sadducees were were descended from the Hasmoneans, which was King Herod and his sort of the Jewish aristocracy. It would appear that they, um, or the Maccabees, that's who they were descended from, sorry, the Maccabees from from that period of time, 150 years before this, it would appear from this that they they probably didn't have any doctrine of resurrection. So they probably believed that people, I don't think they believed in annihilationism. I don't think so. I think they probably just believed in the whole idea of where everyone dies and just sort of soul sleep, sort of shade, which is a, the, the, a bit of a Jewish belief in the Old Testament that they kind of just, everyone just goes and exists in this shady place of pseudo existence kind of thing. I think that's what they believed. But I think where it comes from is that the Sadducees held to the Torah only. So they held to the first five books of the Bible only. Right. And in those first five books of the Bible, Jesus will prove otherwise, but they say there's no evidence of resurrection. There's no evidence of angels and so on. Well, there is. I don't know where they got around it because there yeah. is Abraham and the two angels and Sodom and Gomorrah and all that yeah. kind of stuff, yeah. the angel of the Lord. But I think that's what it was. The Sadducees held to those first five books. And Jesus uses those when he's questioned by the Sadducees. You know, um, you say there's a resurrection. Well, there was seven men, one guy married to seven women. Who's going to be the yeah. – another way around. One woman married to seven men. Whose wife will she be? Um, and Jesus says, you're in error because you don't know the power of God. And he quotes the Abraham, he quotes the Torah and says, I am the God of Abraham and the Isaac and Jacob. And Jacob. So he's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. So I think the Sadducees didn't have any understanding of, they refuted all the prophets. They refuted all the Psalms. None of that stuff stuck to the first five books only. And they built all their doctrine. Well, I thought they were building the doctrine out of that. Yeah. So I guess they just thought that their life was just to serve the Lord and that was it. Whatever happens after I think that so. happens. Yeah. But the Sadducees were the most corrupt of all the sects. Yeah. Well, yeah. they they didn't have much going for them after death, so they No, that's <laughs> right. They've just lived for this. I think so. Yeah. So yes, they were definitely the most corrupt. There's five main sects and these guys were the ones who were in bed with the Romans the most. They were just living for power. So the high priest was one of those, the priestly family were and they they bought they had bought the the position. They weren't they right. they weren't descendants who were Entitled to the position, yep. They had paid off to get the position. Yeah, right. So they weren't like Levites or no. Well, they, they, I don't even know if they were Levites. I'm not even sure about that. But yes, they had got the position through through power play and yeah. money. Okay. Yeah, they were pretty corrupt. All right. So Paul starts this argument bet- between the two of them, and you know, it, it kind of uh, gets him out of trouble for a it little. It does while. for a little while. Very clever on his part. Uh, we can read the room. There's a bit of emotional intelligence there. If people are united against you, maybe get them united against get them, you know, arguing with each other and then you'll you'll escape you can you can get away. Yep. Well That's what he did. Verse eleven, the following night the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Stop there because this goes with the Agabus prophecy. Yeah. He wanted to go to Rome and he's had this period of time where he thinks he's gonna be He's willing to die in Jerusalem. Now Paul's going, God's saying him, Jesus is saying to him, I'm going to get you to Rome. It's just not going to be the way you thought. Yeah. So you were on the right track and we can have the right track, but God has a different, we have the right destination, 
but God will often put us on a different path to that destination. Yep. That's what's happening here. So you're not going to die when your hands yep. and feet are bound up. Yeah, you're not going to die. You're going to be chucked in jail. Yeah, exactly. And, and he will he will see this because this is in the same way that Agabus was showing Paul what was going to happen when he gets to Jerusalem. I reckon Paul is looking back on this because he's going to be shipwrecked day and night. He's going to be shipwrecked mm. in sea in Malta and he says – he knows he's going to Rome. This, he's had this revelation. Come hell or high water, I'm getting to Rome. Yeah. Even if the ship goes down, I'm getting to Rome. So this is like God giving him prophetic future. It's not going to be comfortable, Paul, but it's all going to work out in the end. Yeah. Well, this, yeah, this is the Lord stood near Paul. So yes, that's right. That, that, that's pretty comforting, isn't it? It is, yeah. Yep. So verse 12, the next morning some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. That was a dumb thing. It was a dumb move because I wonder if they broke their oath or not. Oh, what do you reckon? Well, well I, I reckon that they would have broken their oath. I reckon they would have. Too. We don't see what happened to them, but spoiler alert, they didn't kill Paul. He got away. Yeah. And we don't hear about what happened to these 40 dudes. It would, would, have, would have depended upon how, uh, how devout they were, whether yeah. they would have got on a hunger strike because they missed out, but they didn't get. I can see these guys thinking, oh, how are we going to keep our credibility after this? Yeah, we didn't have to true. spin this somehow. Yeah, like, that's right. You know, we – we well, when we It was said, out of our control. When we said kill him, we meant get him out of our town. Yeah, that's know, right. Or, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we got rid of him. Or, you no, wanted him out of here? Well, he's gone now. Or just like our politicians do. No, mm. I never said that. Put a spin on it. Yeah, yeah. no, I never said that. Yeah, that's I right. I said something different. That's not yeah. what I meant. You're misreading yeah. understand what I meant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. When we said food, we meant <coughs> bananas. We're yeah. not going to eat bananas. That's it. You know. Yep. Come on. We didn't say what food. Yep. Something like that. They would have had to. They would have had to put a spin on it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Paul isn't killed. He's off to Rome. Via Caesarea. Two years in Caesarea first. Well, yeah. 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 So he gets put in a – because they hear about this conspiracy. Paul's nephew hears about this conspiracy. So he tells Paul. Paul tells the commander, uh, the the jailer, and the the commander founds out and he sends Paul under mounted guard back to Caesarea. Um, to protect him. Yeah. So he ends up back in Caesarea. I've been to the place where um, there's a marked on the floor. They reckon it's the room that was the jail cell in the palace at Caesarea where Paul spent two years of his life. It's quite wow. a surreal moment yeah. to stand there in that room. Or oh, it's not a room. It's just a concrete spot on the floor. Yeah. But to think Paul spent time right here and from here he took the gospel to Rome. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. But, you know, as we read through this, we see that, God had a plan yeah. for Paul. And and it wasn't comfortable for Paul. It wasn't comfortable for Paul. But God was going to make sure it was going to happen. That's you right. Know, he kept him alive through all yep. sorts of, man, he could have died seven, ten, twenty times. Totally. Couldn't he? And friends, just because it doesn't work out the way you think it should work out or want it to work out doesn't mean that it won't work out. Oh, yeah. This sure. tells us that. God has a plan. Philippians 1, 6, he says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work will carry it on to completion. Paul's able to say that kind of thing because he's seen that happen. It didn't work out the way he thought, didn't go. Oftentimes he went different directions and whatever, but all the way through he trusted and came to see God's faithfulness, even in the midst of it not working out the way he expected. Yeah. That's our life, isn't it? Well, it is. And, and you know, God even uses... <laughs> The, the government to, to look after Paul, doesn't yes, he? Yes, that's know, right. Like you said, the soldiers all carried him off and then he gets put in Herod's palace and, mm. you know, the Lord will have his way. Yep, for sure. 
Okay. Um, I think that's about it. That's it for that chapter. Acts 23. So now he's in Caesarea. Yep. And he's in, in prison in the in the palace in Caesarea. Yep. yep. Go to the next chapter, okay. X24. 24. Coming right up. So Paul now stands trial before Governor Felix. So he's kind of gradually working his way up the hierarchy, isn't he? Yes, that's you know? a good way to put it. Yeah. Yep. So <laughs> he stands before this uh, Felix. So Felix is going to, he's the governor. So he's basically what Pontius Pilate was at the time of Christ. Yep. yep. Okay. And, and, you know, Paul Paul is quite polite to him, you know. Oh, what's he say? Um I know that for a number of years you've been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defence. You know, he's he's saying, you know, yeah, he's not he's not being disrespectful at all. He's going, look. Well, here's here's the deal, because immediately before, Tertullus, who is going to be the lawyer operating on behalf of the Jews to try to prosecute him, um, he he also does all the fluff and the pageantry, and oh, I know that you've enacted reforms and okay. done all the political stuff. Yep. But there's a difference between the way Turtleus is doing it, which is kind of like trying to sweeten him up, and Paul, who's just being honest. And he, this is a great lesson for us Christians. We taught we, a lot of Christians are taught to rant and rave at the government, but Paul here, he's not doing that. He's being gracious, like you said. He's being he's being respectful, isn't he? Well, he is, yeah, hmm. for sure. And then so he goes on to say, verse twelve: My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. So he's saying like, you know, I don't really know why I'm in trouble here. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. This is what they did with Jesus too, wasn't it? They make they up They trumped up charges. charges. Yep. yep. And this is a pattern for how – we talked about this. I think I talked about this with, with Jimmy, you know, civil disobedience. This is a pattern for how Paul did it. He wasn't out there – starting rights intentionally. Rights happened around him sometimes, but it wasn't his intention yeah. to do that. Yeah. He he just was he wasn't going out there to out everybody. He was out there to show and preach about Jesus. Okay, and so in verse 14 he says, "However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets." And I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. So, you know, Paul's Paul's showing them that he believes in Christ and that, that he can do that without dismissing the law. Yes. Which is... You know, that's what Jesus talked about too, didn't he? Didn't he? You know, yeah, exactly. He came to fulfill, fulfill the law. Fulfill the law. Not, not yep. to just Jesus is a Jewish Messiah first and foremost. Yes, mm. that's right. So Paul goes on to kind of talk a little bit about um, about the gospel and it says here in verse 24, several days later Felix came with his wife Drusilla who was Jewish. Uh, he sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control and judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now, you may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. 
at the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. Uh-huh. So he sent for him frequently nice try, and Felix. talked with him. But so, you know, he, he was playing a bit of a bit of both. He, I feel like he was getting convicted. Yeah, there's something going on inside Felix, isn't there? Yeah. 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 It's sure. a little bit like Herod Antipas when John the Baptist is before him. Mm. Even though he's calling him out on his, um, you know, on his marrying Herodias and all that, John the Baptist does that. There's this sense in which he has a he has a respect. There's something inside Herod Antipas that goes, um, this dude's onto something. Yeah. But in the end, he didn't want to kill him, but he had to because you know the whole story of the dancing and all that kind of stuff. It's a little bit like this: the, the word is doing something in Felix, and he's conflicted because he's trying to get he's trying to play both sides here. Yeah. And I think that's the power of the gospel, isn't it? Yes. When it brings we, conviction. When we preach the gospel. Yep. When we, when I say preach, I mean just tell people about Jesus. That's And that's what Paul's doing here. He's, yeah. He's preaching about righteousness, self-control, and the day of coming judgment. Mm. So he's, I assume it's a conversation. I'm assuming he's being summoned before Felix. Yeah. If we go on what it looked like before, he's not hellfire and brimstone. I mean, he's been respectful to Felix a few you know, earlier on in this chapter. So he's engaging in conversation with Felix. Yeah. Felix is asking questions. He's answering them, but it's getting a little bit close to home for Felix. Yeah, and especially since Felix's wife was there as well. That's Paul, right. Paul, of course, would have you know shown respect. Shown yep. respect there. Exactly. And, and that the gospel does things. People might, you know, we might talk to people about Jesus, and it might seem like nothing's happening, but something's it's happening. working behind the scenes. It always, it never. What does it say? My word never. Re- Returns, returns void, void yeah, it? it's good, Jeff. Always doing something, and that's and it's, we don't have to be the one to bring everyone across the line to salvation. Paul says, you know, Paul, you know, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gives the increase, and the, those who plant and those who water share together. We don't know, Paul. Paul, we don't know what happened to Felix. Paul might have been planting seeds that might have got watered and bore fruit in his life yeah. later on. That's our job is just to be faithful with the questions that we have, the people we have in our world in front of us that's right, right now. And it's so so often the case, maybe Drusilla, his wife, became Might've, a Christian. Yeah, maybe and, so. You know that quite often happens. Yes, it does. The, the you know quite often the wives yep. tend to be a bit more. Well, there was jo- Joanna, <laughs> the wife of Chooser, who was chief Herod's chief steward, like the you know pretty popular guy in Herod's household. Mm. And Joanna is his wife, and she's following Jesus around, bankrolling Jesus' ministry. Yeah, yeah. So yes, you're right. That's it. Mm. Yeah, plenty of plenty of men have come to Christ through their through wives. Women. That's sure. right, absolutely. Or their girlfriends, or exactly what what have you? Yep. So yeah, so Felix is two years, nothing happens. Felix yep. now gets a promotion or a demotion, one or the other. We don't know. Something happened, but he's yeah. succeeded by Portius Festus, and the whole story begins again, doesn't it? It does. Yep. So we're going to do twenty five. Yep. Off to twenty five. Last one. So Acts chapter 25, like we said, it just continues on again with a a different governor. But Paul's audience sort of becomes, like I said before, it gets more and more important, more and more high-ranking officials begin to listen to him. There's governors, then we go on to the king and possibly even Caesar. We don't, I don't think we know that he actually 
speaks to uh, we don't have it within biblical context yes no. that's right yep. I think extra biblical context historical evidence is that he did testify before Caesar but we don't know that yep. from the Bible yep okay so what's happening here Pastor Ryan? So three three days after the new governors come, the Jews are going, right, well, that's it. We've wasted the last two years. Let's have another crack. So they show up again. They head down from Jerusalem and go, we got, I mean, these guys have got a, they're pretty hell bent on taking Paul down yep. because I mean, he's locked up in prison for goodness sake, but they come again. And this time they show up before Festus and uh, they want to, uh, they want to bring accusations before him again. And Festus says in verse four, um, Paul, oh, they, uh, let's, let's back up a little bit. He says, um, three days later, Festus arrived in Caesarea to take over those responsibilities. He left for Jerusalem. He wanted to check out what was happening in Jerusalem. The leading priest showed up and said, um, you know, there's this guy, Paul, you've got in, Felix has got in prison. We want him. So he heads back to Caesarea and he says, hey, Paul, would you be willing to go and stand in Jerusalem? And he goes, uh-uh, I've, I've learned that lesson. They were trying to kill me last time I was there. <laughs> no, 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 yeah. this, is, this is Caesar's court. I'll stay right here. Thanks very much. Yep. And so they may start a case and they bring him down. Um, he says, I'm innocent of these charges. And then, like you said, King Herod Agrippa shows up. And uh, so they have a little con. Herod Agrippa comes, who is um, not a Roman, but he's he's a descendant of Herod the Great and yep. he's two or three Herods down from there. Um, and he shows up to pay his respects to Festus because they're local leaders. And then they together get together and ring Paul uh, before him and uh, have a little consort. Like you said, it keeps going up and up and up. Yep. Paul defends himself to these guys. And he tells his own story again. He talks to to Agrippa and Bernice, who is Agrippa's wife. Mm-hmm. He he has a consult with them, tells his whole story, talks about how he was um, saved. And Agrippa starts to get a bit sketchy too. Festus thinks he's crazy. Festus says, uh, you're out of your mind, Paul. And um, actually, that's going to be the next chapter. You're going to have to wait for the next chapter <laughs> for that because the, the chapter continues. Um, but just for the, for the sake of the story right now, Paul uh, – Agrippa says, hey, I know this stuff. Do you think you can convince me to be a Christian? And Paul says, Agrippa, I would love that everyone hearing this would be a Christian and would be like me except for these chains that I'm in. Mm. So, uh, you know, he's he's very aware of his desire for people. Even in this moment, he's aware of his desire for people to become Christians. So they want to set him free. He's done nothing wrong, but uh, he appeals to Caesar. That's what happens in this story. Yep. I'm just um, looking up a verse here that I've got written in my notes. Philippians 4 verse 22. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. So okay, that was my point that, that we don't know if he went to before the emperor, before Caesar, but he seems to be saying here that Caesar's household send you greetings. So he must have got in in a month. Oh, yes. Caesar's household. Well, we know. Yep. So the argument, I've had this conversation with Jenny. N.T. Wright says that when Paul wrote the prison letters, he was in Ephesus, not in Rome. Traditionally, he's in Rome when he says this. So he, this stage he's in, he's in Caesarea, which is not, it's named after Caesar, but it's Caesar's household in the sense that it's, it's the government palace. Right. Um, okay. But when he's writing Philippians, he's either in Ephesus or Rome, depending on which view you have. Um, when he says this, and he's basically saying, wherever I am, I'm preaching, even in these chains. Yep. He says, he actually says in Philippians, for I want you to know that what has happened to me in these chains has actually served the gospel. 
because, and I thought that's where you're going to go, because he says, because all in Caesar's household know that I'm in chains for the sake of the gospel. So wherever yeah. Paul was, he was going to preach about Jesus. Yep. He's doing that in this situation. And Paul, it's almost like Paul sees this moment when they say, hey, we want to set you free. And Paul's, Paul says, um, he says, would you be willing to go to Jerusalem on this child? And Paul says, no. This is verse 10. No, this is the official Roman court. I ought to be tried here. Yep. If I've done anything wrong, I don't deserve to die. They conferred. He says, I appeal to Caesar. It's like Paul goes, oh, this is how I'm getting to Rome. Yep. I'm going to go into Roman guard. I'm going to get to Rome the easy way. Yeah, yeah. So he thinks under Roman guard. So he appeals to Caesar. Festus gets together and they say, well, he could have been set free, but he's appealed to Caesar. So let's send him to Caesar. Yeah. But you're going to end this story with him meeting with Agrippa and saying, I want to send him on, but I don't know what to send him. I don't know what to say. Well, I've got to have some charges. I can't, I can't send a man to Caesar for trial unless I've got some decent charges or Caesar's going to think I'm an idiot. He's going to sack me. Mm. So they're trying to work out what's the real deal with this guy. He hasn't done anything wrong. He's not, he's not really done anything worthy of being sent to Caesar. That's right. Yeah. So that's the conundrum that they're dealing with in this chapter. Yeah. And, uh, and I guess my final point that I would make here is that this journey that Paul takes is not, although it is about Paul, it's not really about Paul. It's really about the spread of the gospel, isn't yes. it? And that's the, that's the. Because on the way. The underlying He's going to end up in Malta. And he's going to preach yes. in Malta on the That's way because right. he's going to be shipwrecked in the next chapter or the next two chapters. So this journey itself is going to um, bring people to Christ. Yeah. Everywhere Paul goes, he's on mission. Yeah. You know, this is our mission month and, you know, we're wrapping up a mission month series here. Paul was on mission even in chains. Yeah. In the bilges of a boat, he was on, he was on mission. Yeah. He wasn't going to miss an opportunity. He's going to be shipwrecked. And he, the night before he shipwrecked, he's having communion with all of them and he's preaching to them all about yeah. Jesus. Yeah. He's always on mission. Yep. And, you know, of course, we know that eventually Paul dies. Mm -hmm. And and so what does that tell us then about our lives as Christians, you know, that maybe we we play our part while we're here on earth to help spread the gospel yep. and we die and somebody else comes along and continues Amen. the work of spreading the gospel. God it? has written this into his story yep. for this period of time. Yep. Paul will say it in Philippians, he will say, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. That's that was right. his motto. Yep. If I'm alive, I'm going to live for Jesus. Yep. And just because some great Christian man that we maybe look up to dies doesn't mean the gospel, the ends. gospel dies. No. Right. And that's right. The, the church is more resilient than that. Yeah. But it's also humbling for us. It, it should inspire us that God has chosen to write you and I as we're listening to this and those that are listening to this. God has written you into his story. Yeah. There are people who need you to live on mission yeah. and live the gospel. But you're not God's only answer to the world. You're part of the story. So there's a there's a confidence and a humility that need to go with that. Yes. Some people think the whole thing rises and falls on them and that's narcissistic. Others of us would probably think we're not as important as we we are and we should be confident that God has called us for our mission field, whatever that looks like, whether that's across the street, across the room, across the street or across the world, yeah. God has called us to be on mission. Yeah. And I think all of us have moments, don't we, where we feel, yep, we're on fire and yep. other moments when, why am I doing this? Yep. You know, yep. it's, I'm... And you might feel like you're in chains. Yeah. You might feel like you're being bound. But Paul would teach us, regardless, stay on mission. Yeah. Great. Good stuff.
All right. Thank That's you, Pastor Ryan. Thank you, Jeff. That's been a really enlightening conversation today. It was really helpful. Yeah, good stuff. All right. We'll talk to you on the next one. See you, everyone. Ciao.